Remnant Warrior, in association with Kingdom Audio, presents Dominion of Darkness, Therion Rising. Prologue. Most people are oblivious to anything outside the bubble that they have created for themselves. That definitely includes major conspiracies, the final world tribulation, and things that go bump at night. Things in which they have conveniently convinced themselves either don't apply to them or only exist in the realm of make-believe. The truth is that major conspiracies have been carried out upon the common people of the world by the powers that shouldn't be since the beginning of time. Everyone alive for the tribulation will go through it, and most things that go bump at night are very real, no matter how much we may wish them to be make-believe. For people living through the final great tribulation, what normally goes bump at night, will be visibly coming after people from dusk until dawn. That is especially true for those without the seal of God. The book of Revelation is not just the last book of the Bible. It records more than just the last chapter in the story of mankind's and the world. It also records the final battle in the war between good and evil, as well as the judgment and consequences of an event that took place near the beginning of recorded history. This event can be found in ancient traditions of every race of people across the ancient world. For time's sake, we are only going to look at the true account of the event itself, using information from the place that records the true account of the events. The place that holds the most credibility and historical accuracy is the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis in the Bible. Genesis chapters 6 to 1 to 2 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, too, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Those two verses are the key to understanding the existence of everything that goes bump at night as well as what started the war between God and the angels who sinned, but it is only the beginning. To truly get the full picture of what happened in Genesis 6, one would have to look at a few more texts. Along with this chapter of Genesis, there are other credible sources that give much more detail of these events. They are found in parallel accounts from the biblically endorsed extra-biblical texts of 1 Enoch, Jasher, and Jubilees. All the supernatural beings that you will read about in this book are found in the pages of the Bible, but without a lot of detail. These other three texts give us the details of what is described in Genesis chapter 6, you will see throughout this book that this event and those who were a part of it, were also a part of the mythology of every major culture in the ancient world. I believe these so-called mythical beings will play a big part of the final chapter of this world. Genesis chapter 6 is a brief description of what happened with the watchers whom God sent from heaven to earth. Lightning and thunder cracked the sky, shaking the entire mountain, as 200 watcher-class angels descended upon the top of Mount Hermon. They had been sent by the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth to instruct mankind in righteousness. There on the summit of Mount Hermon, they saw the women of the earth for the first time and now being in their physical form, the watchers felt the lust of the flesh for the first time. There were twenty chiefs over groups of ten, with Semizah being a chieftain, and the leader over them all. It was Semizah who convinced the others to swear an oath to take wives for themselves from the women of the earth and create children of their own. But who was it that convinced Semizah? He was one of the holy angels and leader of the Watchers. There is little chance that he would betray his creator, unless someone else convinced him that he should. Only a being of extreme intelligence, with an equally extreme hatred for the almighty creator of heaven and earth, 
would have the fortitude and capability to convince a powerful watcher as Semyazah to rebel against God. The only being who fits that description, is the same being who disguised himself as a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve to give up their dominion of the earth, disobey God, and eat from the tree they knew would kill them, and that being's name was Samael. Under the influence of Samael, Semyazah convinced the watchers to make a choice that would seal their fate, as well as the fates of all living creatures on earth. They'd been sent by God to instruct mankind in righteousness and lead them to worship him. Instead, the chiefs among them, influenced by Samael, who declared I will be like the Most High God, chose to be worshipped as gods by mankind. So, they all mated with the women of earth to create a race in their image. Their children were created from the union of the celestial with the terrestrial. Therefore, they had the strengths of their fathers but the weaknesses of their mothers. They belonged to neither heaven nor earth and were therefore born as monsters who were known as the Nephilim. They were great giants who craved and consumed human blood. As if creating the giant Nephilim vampires wasn't bad enough, the leaders among the Watchers taught mankind the secrets of heaven. Azazel taught men to make swords, knives, and shields. He made known to them the metals of the earth, and how to work them into weapons of warfare. He taught the women how to paint their eyelids, and create jewelry out of silver and gold. Semyazah and his brother Armoros taught them enchantments, root cuttings, and the workings of magic spells. The other leaders of the Watchers taught them astrology and the other secrets of heaven. They used the knowledge of heaven to mix men with animals and created horrible hybrid monsters. The sins of the Watchers were so great that they corrupted the genetics of almost all of creation upon the earth. Their sins would bring down the judgment of God upon themselves and all creation, judgment like the world had never seen since its formation and hasn't seen since. The judgment of God landed upon the Watchers and their children first. God sent the Archangels Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, and Raphael to bind the Watchers. They successfully bound all but 70 of the 200 inside Earth in the lowest part of Hades, called Tartarus. He set the children of the Watchers against each other and made their fathers watch as the majority were destroyed. God then sent the Flood as judgment upon the world to clean away the majority of the monstrosities that resulted from the sin of the Watchers. Very few survived the binding of the Watchers, the wars of the Nephilim or the worldwide flood. Two out of those watchers, their original sons, and the other monstrous hybrids they created known as the Fallen who did survive, were the watcher Armoros and his son Bane. Armoros had the secrets of heaven and power from God to control and live in the sea, and he therefore declared himself the god of magic and of the sea. Because of this, mankind worshipped him as such. He passed the ability to breathe underwater and survive in the sea to his son Bane, giving him the ability to survive the flood that God sent to destroy the world. After the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages of the people and scattered them across the face of the earth. He also divided them according to the number of the sons of God, according to Deuteronomy 32. The 70 watchers whom God didn't have bound in chains inside Tartarus with the other 130, are the same sons of God according to which he divided the nations according to, except for Israel whom he chose as his own. Each providence had its principality that would be the head of its pantheon of gods, however the pantheons themselves tended to be made of the same gods throughout each nation, with the names being one of the few things that changed. Now that you know the basics of how the war began and who most of the major players are on each side, you'll recognize them when they show up in this book and its sequels. This book series tells how the culmination of the war and events of the end times might happen. This is based on scripture and how I see it possibly playing out. 
Now the watcher Armoros and his son Bane were known by different names and worshipped as different gods in many nations and cultures throughout history, but the three by which Armoros was most worshipped are Heka to the Egyptians, Poseidon to the Greeks, Neptune to the Romans, and his son Bane was worshipped as was Triton. He has been worshipped by every navy ever to exist. It's no wonder then that after the old gods began to be openly worshipped again, he was also worshipped by the East India Company's navy, and the United States Navy. This is the real reason why in modern times, the SEALs wear the Trident. Chief Petty Officer Jason Thorne is an elite U.S. Navy SEAL from SEAL Team 3 who has carried out classified military operations all over the world, serving three tours in Afghanistan, specializing in demolitions and close-quarter combat as a part of Delta Platoon within the Naval Special Warfare Command. His oldest and closest friend, CIA operative Jeremiah Sanderson, gets him recruited into a highly classified covert organization, known only as Red Cell. During his time with Delta Platoon, he'd been in almost every combat scenario imaginable. He had witnessed and carried out unspeakable acts of violence. He'd faced off with every type of enemy imaginable and emerged victorious. Absolutely none of what he had seen or done so far could have possibly prepared him for the evil he'd encounter within Red Cell. He was about to learn the identity and plans of the oldest evil ever to exist. A powerful evil controlling the most powerful military in the world. More importantly, he would soon learn the prophetic significance of what they're planning. He'd never given a lot of thought to the supernatural outside what he had seen in movies or read in books. He also wasn't a religious or spiritual man, but that would soon be a thing of the past. Jason was about to have his entire paradigm shattered. When Jeremiah Sanderson needs his help, he is thrown headfirst into the final war between the forces of good and the forces of evil. In trying to help Jeremiah, Jason is about to find himself in the middle of a war that has been raging for close to 6,000 years. Note to the reader. There have been many books written about what life may be like during the tribulation. I will be the first to admit that most if not all of those books were written by more experienced and probably better writers. I didn't set out to write a more entertaining novel about the end times than the others that are out there. What I set out to write was a doctrinal sound book series about what I believed living through the tribulation could be like. That's also entertaining to read. It is my hope that you will come away from this book having been entertained, but most importantly with an idea of what both Christians and non-Christians could be living through, sooner rather than later. Please consider leaving a review of this book on Amazon. Leaving reviews on Amazon are one of the best ways to support this or any book. Sharing it on social media is also a good way for you to help. Thank you so much for all your support and may God bless each one of you. Grace and Peace Chapter 1 The Beast That Was and Is Now Will One Day Rise Again from the Abyss Revelation 12 7-12 7 And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, ate and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. 9 And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 10 And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. 11 And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. 12 Therefore rejoice, ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, 
For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. 1 John 2 18 18 little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The watcher Samael, who would eventually be called Lucifer, was furious. He'd done everything in his considerable power to stop the prophesied seed of the woman from being born. Then, he made sure that every child who might be the prophesied seed foretold to crush his head, was put to death. He thought about how he had failed in escaping his creator's prophecy again. Lucifer had lost. Jesus had won when he defeated sin and death. The followers of Jesus had truly been given tremendous power. God could have used them, along with the hosts of heaven, to destroy Lucifer, his angels, and demons if he wasn't concerned about saving so many of his precious humans. Lucifer went before God and accused the followers of Christ day and night until war broke out in heaven. So, the watchers Armoros, Balzebub, and Thanatos came to fight alongside Samael, Lucifer. Michael and his angels battled Lucifer and the fallen watchers. Michael, Raphael, Uriel, and Gabriel cast them out of heaven and down to earth. Lucifer was furious and in truth he was scared. We've got to begin preparing for the final battle against heaven now. I don't know how much time we have, Lucifer shouted. I'm going to raise a champion from the humans God loves so much. He'll be the king over my armies of darkness, the same way Nimrod was so long ago. So, Lucifer, being the master tactician of war that he is, started orchestrating events to raise the one he would use to destroy the followers of Christ. He began corrupting the child who would become the Emperor Nero at an early age. Nero was born Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus on 15th of December AD 37. He was the son of Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus and Agrippina the Younger. Chapter 1. The Beast That Was and Is Not Will One Day Rise Again from the Abyss Revelation 12 7-12 7- And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, ate and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. 9- And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 10- And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. 11 And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. 12 Therefore rejoice, ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. 1 John 2 18 18 little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The watcher Samael, who would eventually be called Lucifer, was furious. He'd done everything in his considerable power to stop the prophesied seed of the woman from being born. Then, he made sure that every child who might be the prophesied seed foretold to crush his head, was put to death. He thought about how he had failed in escaping his creator's prophecy again. Lucifer had lost. Jesus had won when he defeated sin and death. The followers of Jesus had truly been given tremendous power. God could have used them, along with the hosts of heaven, to destroy Lucifer, his angels, and demons if he wasn't concerned about saving so many of his precious humans. 
Lucifer went before God and accused the followers of Christ day and night until war broke out in heaven. So, the watchers Armoros, Balzebub, and Thanatos came to fight alongside Samael, Lucifer. Michael and his angels battled Lucifer and the fallen watchers. Michael, Raphael, Uriel, and Gabriel cast them out of heaven and down to earth. Lucifer was furious and in truth he was scared. We've got to begin preparing for the final battle against heaven now. I don't know how much time we have, Lucifer shouted. I'm going to raise a champion from the humans God loves so much. He'll be the king over my armies of darkness, the same way Nimrod was so long ago. So, Lucifer, being the master tactician of war that he is, started orchestrating events to raise the one he would use to destroy the followers of Christ. He began corrupting the child who had become the Emperor Nero at an early age. Nero was born Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus on 15th of December AD 37. He was the son of Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus and Agrippina the Younger. Both Gnaeus and Agrippina were the grandchildren of Caesar Augustus, giving Nero a strong claim to power. This made him Lucifer's choice, and he would take away any innocence the boy had. Nero was only two years old when his mother was exiled, and three when his father died. His inheritance was taken from him, and he was sent to live with his aunt. Lucifer began whispering in the child's ear to make him hate his mother and blame her for his problems. Lucifer then made sure Nero's fate changed again when Claudius became emperor, restoring the boy's property and recalling his mother Agrippina from exile. In AD 49 the emperor Claudius married Agrippina and adopted Nero the following year. It is at this point that Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus changed his name to Nero Claudius Caesar Drusus Germanicus. In Roman times, it was normal to change your name when adopted, abandoning your family name in favor of your adoptive father's name. Nero was a common name among members of the Claudian family, especially in Claudius' branch. Nero and Agrippina offered Claudius a politically useful link back to Augustus, strengthening his position. Lucifer made sure Claudius favored Nero over his natural son Britannicus, marking Nero as the designated heir. Lucifer did his work well and corrupted the boy completely before he was even a man. Nero became the emperor of Rome at only age 16 with the death of Claudius. By age 21 Nero was so thoroughly wicked that he killed his mother, Agrippina. Nero hated people passionately and murdered anyone his hatred fell upon, including both of his wives, as many Christians as possible. Hatred was placed into his heart at an early age. Lucifer could enter into anyone who opened themselves up to him. He also often used the demons that he controlled to enter and influence people. Lucifer and his demons entered Nero regularly from the time hatred entered him. Lucifer truly believed that the culmination of his war with heaven and the followers of Christ had come. He believed that Nero was proof of this. Nero hated and killed the Christians so brutally, and so successfully, but it was no wonder Lucifer thought the end was at hand. Many followers of Christ believed the same thing, but the apostles were not convinced. The apostle John wrote, You have heard that Antichrist would come, and even now, many Antichrists have gone out into the world, showing that the end had not yet come. Writing to the church in Thessalonica, the apostle Paul said, in reference to the Emperor Nero, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. He clarified it for the Thessalonians, however, that Nero was not the final man of lawlessness. So, while Lucifer hoped the time for his revenge had come, and Nero did kill more Christians than anyone for thousands of years, 
evil would be restrained. Nero took his life in 68 AD, and his spirit was sent down into the abyss of Hades. Lucifer didn't know how long he would have to wait for the final battle against heaven, but he was glad that he had been wrong about having to fight it now. He wasn't ready. He was going to corrupt as many souls as he could, kill as many Christians as he could, and use every minute until the time of the end to make sure his plan was perfect. Not only that, but he knew that the day would come when he, Armoros, Zebub Moloch, and Thanatos would be reunited with their imprisoned brothers and the final battle would be fought. For now, he had a plan to infiltrate and corrupt God's church. He would call a meeting of the gods on their Mount of Assembly, Mount Hermon. After all, this was still his domain, and he was still the god of this world. Chapter 2. The Removal of the Restrainer and Return of the False Gods January 2020 Sambael soared above the earth, contemplating everything he was going to do to his enemies. First, he would enslave and then destroy his creator's favorite little parasites, the Christians. Next, he was going to bind those do-gooder archangels, the same way they had done to his brothers. Finally, he would destroy his creator and take his rightful place as the king of heaven and earth. He had once been the most beautiful angel in heaven, in charge of leading the praise and worship for his creator. He had even loved his creator once. Even after he rebelled, he was still allowed in heaven. He tricked Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge, convinced Semizah and the Watchers to join his plan to become gods, and created children of their own. However, he was still the official accuser of Israel inside of God's divine council. If he was honest, he always knew the day would come when the prophesied seed of the woman would defeat him, and he would be kicked out of God's presence for good. He just didn't see it happening the way that it did on the cross and in the abyss. He should have been able to see it coming because it was a tactical move of genius that even he had to admire. The true reason he hadn't seen it coming was because it wasn't some master deception like he would have used. It was a selfless act of sacrifice made in unconditional agape love for the enemies of Jesus. Samael came to a stop at the top of Mount Hermon and left the spiritual plane before sitting upon his throne atop his Mount of Assembly. He shot an evil look towards the ripples of power that remained up the side of Mount Hermon, where Jesus was transfigured to announce his arrival to the fallen watching from both planes of existence. From his throne on top of Mount Hermon, Samael, Lucifer, ruled the earth as the god of this world. He called the other members of his unholy trinity to him. It felt a shift in the spiritual and physical planes, and he needed to confirm his suspicions with Armoros and Balzebub. Furthermore, he had felt his power grow tremendously, which could only mean that his time for revenge had come. Armoros appeared out of a cloud of black smoke in his full 12-foot form using his powers of darkness. Since taking the position of Admiral of the United States Navy, he usually only appeared closer to his son Bane's height of 8 feet, 2.44 meters. The next moment a thunderbolt struck the top of the mountain carrying the storm god Baal. All three members of the Dark Trinity, Samael, Baal, and Armoros, were now completely manifested in the physical plane on top of their mount of assembly. Samael asked both of the other watchers if they had also felt the lack of restraint in their power. Sure enough, Samael confirmed his suspicions that evil was no longer being restrained and the time they were waiting for had arrived. Not long after the three of them arrived atop Mount Hermon, they were joined by four more of the old gods. The ten-foot god Mammon arrived in a Merkaba, 
which are the angelic vehicles responsible for most UFO sightings. As the god of greed, Mammon was known by some as the root of all evil. He was followed by the gray, pointed-eared, vampire bat-looking, god of the underworld, Moloch. And the eight-foot Nephilim, vampire demigod, Bane appeared out of a black cloud of smoke from the same black magic as his father's. Finally, the black-winged, red-eyed, hooded figure of Thanatos, the Greek god of death arrived. The six old gods and one demigod were the only ones of their kind who weren't chained in Tartarus. They attempted enticed and promised power to many men and women in exchange for their allegiance and worship for centuries. They convinced them to create secret societies of worshippers and followers. These societies had members in the highest parts of government in every nation around the world. They orchestrated the rise and fall of nations, started wars with predetermined outcomes, created global pandemics, as well as all manner of other major world crises. They orchestrated these events to align the nations together like pieces on a chessboard for the final world conflict. Six out of the seven deities were princes over specific regions of the world, who answered only to Samael, now called Lucifer. Lucifer reigns through his princes and is the god of this world. As the god of this world, he has always imitated the true God by having himself and his two most powerful lieutenants be known as and called the Dark Trinity. Samael the Satan is the prince of the power of the air and God over this world. He holds dominion over the other pagan gods, Nephilim, demons, and all the children of disobedience. He's been the ruling principality over every empire that has ever ruled the world. Furthermore, he has gone by many names throughout history, Samael and Lil the Satan, Belial, Stemma, and now Lucifer, Lord of Light. He has always been the most intelligent and subtle of all of God's creation. He's not going to go down without a fight, a dirty fight. The Watcher Armbaros has been worshipped as the god of magic and the sea under the name Heka, Poseidon, and Neptune since before the Great Flood. His supernatural abilities and knowledge of the dark arts allow him to enter the minds of almost any living thing and also have power over demonic spirits. He isn't able to control them completely the way Lucifer can, and he can't control other angels. His abilities have made him one of the three most powerful gods. He's one of the strongest weapons in the fight against the kingdom of heaven. The Watcher Batarl became known as the storm god Balzebub, Lord of the Flies. The god of vegetation and storm, the head of the pantheons is Baal in Canaan, Zeus in Greece, and Jupiter in Rome. A muscular, powerful deity who is second only to Lucifer and cannot be beaten through sheer strength alone. These three are the oldest and most powerful of the Watchers who aren't bound in Tartarus. This is why they've always ruled over all the pantheons of the old gods in every nation throughout history. They have always been known as the Dark Trinity. They are preparing for the final battle against God in the 21st century, Thanks to the children of disobedience and their infiltration and influence of every aspect of society, much of the power they now have was gained from the worship of another of the old gods, Moloch. Through the millions of children that have been sacrificed to him throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, he's been able to gain a tremendous amount of spiritual power and give it to his leader Lucifer. Moloch has always been the god of the underworld, living inside the earth. This made him able to avoid imprisonment because of the vast number of tunnels he is inside the earth. After the power he'll have from having millions more babies sacrificed to him, he will be a major help in winning the war against God. 
Although he is the least of all the old gods, he's always managed to get his claws the deepest into Israel by owning the Valley of Hinnom, Organa, on the south and west side of Jerusalem. He was able to get his claws deep into America as well, through the murder of unborn babies by owning the abortion clinics that were placed in every major American city. These clinics serve as the temples that sacrifice to him. Planned Parenthood knowingly worships Moloch. Their motto, pro-choice, comes directly from Satanist Aleister Crowley's philosophy of do what thou wilt. Moloch is the most despicable of the pagan deities, who loves to consume children after having them pass through the fires or abortion sacrifices. He has a labyrinth of tunnels below the earth that will once again make it near impossible for the angels if they try to imprison him. He doesn't like being up on the surface of the earth. Therefore, modern times spends the majority of his days in the deep underground military bases like the one Red Cell Command is in. He is like a rat. Rats can be fearsome when cornered. Although Lucifer and his princes have always worked through the children of disobedience using their lust for power and fear of death against them, there were a few who were the worst of the worst and their names are remembered by both sides of the war to this day. It was the foolish belief that through hidden knowledge they could cheat death that would cause men like the Knights Templar founder Hughes de Pion, as well as Illuminati founder Adam Weishaupt, co-founders of Skull and Bones Alfonso Taft and William Huntington Russell, also the Order of Assassins founder Hassan Isabah, as well as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn founder William Wynne Westcott, and last but definitely not least, Order of Templi Orientis founder Aleister Crowley, to see Lucifer for the fallen angel and personification of evil that he is, yet still worship and create these secret societies for him anyway. Each of these societies has played their part in Lucifer's plan to turn mankind against God and bring about the final world order and war against heaven. The Age of Reason, as God-haters like Thomas Paine like to call the 18th century, paved the way for the creation of the Illuminati by like-minded men like Weishaupt in Bavaria. The Bavarian Illuminati infiltrated and became the highest degrees within Freemasonry. This allowed for the American and French revolutions that created a new form of government that eventually took the place of the monarchies. The universities of America would be the home of some of the most powerful secret societies in the world, such as the infamous aforementioned Skull and Bones. The same secret societies that were paramount in the reordering of the governments of the world beginning in the 18th century, also made sure their man from Skull and Bones was President of the United States in 2001 to carry out the largest attack and human sacrifice in American history and maybe even the world's. Not only did Lucifer's man make the attack happen that made the final world order possible, he also blamed it on Muslim extremists in Afghanistan. That allowed Red Cell to recruit the Nephilim who were living in the caves high in the Afghani mountains, as well as Lucifer's agent of the apocalypse, to ride his red horse of war through the world. This final order will be made up of a ten-region federation under one world leader that is alive even now. Lucifer has been grooming this young man to take power of the world throughout his life, beginning when he was still an innocent young boy like Nero. Now that they were no longer being restrained, everything that they started on September 11, 2001, would finally pay off. As they sat upon the top of Mount Hermon, Lucifer sent Armoros and Bane back to America to prepare Red Cell to start making preparations for war. They would start with covert attacks on the citizens of New Jerusalem that were spread throughout the world. They wouldn't have any trouble getting them to kill in other parts of the world, 
but they would likely have to train the human soldiers specially for them to be able to kill their fellow Americans on American soil. Armoros would probably have to go into the mines of some of them, but it wouldn't take much if any mind control once the upgrades were available. Lucifer also sent them to make sure that the vote played no part in the outcome of the 2020 presidential election at the end of the year, and send covert teams to start riots in key cities before and after the election. They needed the entire world at the brink of full nuclear war by the time Lucifer's messiah brought peace and Therian had fully risen. He sent each of the others on missions of similar importance around the world. He would be staying in Israel for now. Furthermore, he was going to see his protege, Rabbi Joshua Ben Yusuf. It was time for him to begin his rise to power and be prepared to secure the plans to start the building of the Third Temple, once the world was ready to tear itself apart. Bringing peace to the Middle East and stopping World War III was crucial for him to announce that he was the awaited Messiah. Lucifer had already made sure that Joshua Ben Yusuf was next in line to be Secretary General of the United Nations. When the time was right, Lucifer would visit the leaders of every religion pretending to be Gabriel. He would declare that Joshua Ben Yusuf was the savior that each of them were waiting for. He would produce an ancient text he would say had been lost for millennia. This text would prophesy one savior for all the world's religions, and Lucifer's champion would be that awaited savior. When the time came for Joshua to reveal himself as the Messiah, the whole world would embrace him with open arms. Chapter 3, World at War, January 2021 The Red Cell Spec Ops teams had been destabilizing the nations of the world since Red Cell was founded. They had built governments up and brought them down. This, however, was the first time that they had started a world war and killed so many civilians on United States soil. From January 2021 to January 2023, they had orchestrated the events that brought the world to the brink of destruction. Behind the scenes of the wars that they created, they were killing Christians in the shadows. As far as the public was aware, the murder of Christians around the world was not connected to all the wars that had broken out worldwide. Civil war was raging in parts of America. There was a religious war between Jews and Muslims in the Middle East. A coalition of Muslim nations, led by a nuclear-powered Iran, was being fought against the nation of Israel. The two largest potentially nuclear wars were the Jewish-slash-Muslim War and the war between Russia and Ukraine-slash-NATO forces. China and North Korea were on the verge of joining Russia in the war against NATO forces, which would have been the match that lit the nuclear fuse that destroyed the world. Russia and Ukraine finally came to the negotiating table, but only after Russia used a tactical nuke on Ukraine. Add all of that to the global pandemic released by Red Cell in 2020, and it was clear that peace had been taken from the earth. These were wars with real soldiers and real casualties, but they were designed and orchestrated by Red Cell for Lucifer. Their purpose was to cause as much chaos and panic as possible. They were also designed to actually bring the world to the very brink of destruction and pave the way for a savior to come at just the right time. Bain was the commander of Red Cell and second in command under his father, Admiral Armoros. He personally led the Red Cell wet work team in America, and they targeted and killed Christians in every state of the country. When Therian arose from the abyss, he would wage open war against these vermin. Bain would kill them in the shadows until that time came. Lucifer and his lieutenants brought the world to the brink of destruction, and he would have been more than happy to destroy it. 
but his war was not only with the humans. He would rule them and destroy the armies of heaven when the time came. To achieve that, he had to build up his armies and build up his followers. That meant creating enough chaos for his champion to come in and bring order out of it. Until Joshua ben Yusuf was declared the Messiah of the Mitraya of the Mahdi, and even the second coming of Jesus, there had to be war between the Jews and the Muslims in the Middle East. There had to be war between NATO and Russia. Most of all, there had to be a very real threat of all-out nuclear war. This is precisely what the world looked like in January 2023 when Lucifer came to the leaders of both Islam and Judaism pretending to be the angel Gabriel. Lucifer had paved the way for Joshua ben Yusuf to declare himself as the awaited savior who would bring all the religions of the world together. Chapter 4 Revelation 8 Sound the trumpets in Zion. Heaven 2023 The world had come to the very edge of the nuclear cliff, but was stopped just before falling. It had been three years since Michael was commanded to stop restraining the evil of Lucifer and the Watchers. Everything Lucifer had been planning happened quickly after that. They knew that their time was short. The Lamb had opened the seals of the scroll that was the deed to the earth. War, famine, pestilence, and death ravaged the earth until a miracle seemed to happen. Rabbi Joshua ben Yusuf brought peace to a war-torn world. What Lucifer and his lieutenants didn't understand is that God's will is done on earth, the same as it is done in heaven. They were fulfilling prophecy, and now the seven angels with their trumpets were about to sound. When the first angel sounded his trumpet, unnatural storms rose in different places around the earth. The storms brought massive hail and lightning started fires that destroyed a third of all the trees and green grass of the world. Then, the second angel sounded his trumpet. Supervolcanoes under the world's three major oceans erupted, along with supervolcanoes in Wyoming's Yellowstone National Park, Lake Toba in Indonesia, and the Tapo Supervolcano of New Zealand. These unexpected mega-eruptions caused the death of one-third of all life within the sea and turned the ocean blood red. They also destroyed countless numbers of ships and created record-breaking earthquakes and tsunamis that completely devastated coastal regions around the world. The eruption sent so much smoke and ash into the atmosphere that the sun looked like it was covered with sackcloth, the moon looked like the color of blood, the stars couldn't be seen at all throughout the sky for a full third of the night. As a result, it was both one-third darker during the day and also throughout the night. It was now time for the third angel to sound his trumpet. Alaska, December 2023. Barbara Andrews had to take the third shift at the Geophysical Institute Observatory Special Projects Lab. The lab was located on the campus of the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Barbara was glad Alaska was very removed from much of what happened in the majority of the world. Even though she didn't like that it wasn't very far from Russia. The entire world had been on a roller coaster ride from hell since 2020. First, a global pandemic broke out. If that wasn't bad enough, a war between Russia and Ukraine turned into World War III. The entire world, especially the Middle East, was literally on the brink of a nuclear holocaust. Everyone with nukes had their fingers on the nuclear trigger after Russia used a tactical nuke on Ukraine. It looked like the world would really end until a miracle happened in February 2023. Joshua ben Yusuf brought peace to the Middle East that kept the world from destroying itself. Joshua ben Yusuf rebuilt the Jewish temple and united the three major world religions. 
Just when it seemed like the world wasn't going to be destroyed by nuclear war, the Earth itself seemed to be at war with everything living upon it. Earthquakes were happening in diverse places that had never had them before. Supervolcanoes that were supposed to be dormant were waking up. The damage and danger that they brought was almost as bad as nuclear war would have been for the Earth. The special projects team consisted of three graduate students, a special technician, and a team leader. Barbara was the most senior of the three grad students. The workstation where Barbara spent her evening had three monitors. One tracked the current state of the Earth's geomagnetic field. The top portion of the screen showed a line graph feed that displayed magnetic deviation in real time. The bottom portion of the screen revealed the physical data with highlighted anomalies. The second system monitored near-Earth objects and displayed a list of objects that were being tracked by agencies throughout the world. Many people in the field referred to these as NEOs. Each object was coded with an estimated lunar distance, velocity, absolute magnitude, and approximate diameter. The lunar distance identified how close the object would be when it reached Earth's orbit. Absolute magnitude provided a method for determining the size of the object. As most asteroids are not spherical, a simple diameter measurement could not be used. On the third system, Barbara was browsing the internet for a cocktail dress. She preferred a simple little black dress that would accentuate her curvy figure. Months prior, she and her boyfriend, Simon, were invited to a dinner party at a professor's house. The professor was known for his extravagant parties that usually included both graduate students and faculty members. Her boyfriend's murder had been linked to similar murders of devout Christians around the world. It had devastated Barbara, and she spent the two subsequent weeks mourning at home alone. It wasn't until Joshua showed up at her house that she finally cleaned herself up and got out of bed. Josh Hensley was a fairly new professor who hoped to one day work his way to tenure. Barbara suspected that Josh likely had a crush on her, but she wasn't really in the frame of mind to care. On the day that Josh unexpectedly arrived at her apartment, he had convinced her to go out and get a cup of coffee with him. Barbara had been hesitant in the beginning, but eventually agreed. They spent the afternoon talking about Simon, and he mostly just sat and listened. Barbara didn't realize how much she needed to talk about her loss, and although the pain was still there, she did feel a little better. After their coffee date, she and Josh began spending a lot of time together. Josh was a geophysicist, specializing in earthquakes and volcanoes, but he also had an interest in the stars. Before he was killed, she and Simon had been spending a lot of time with Josh since the massive eruptions of several supervolcanoes under the oceans and on land. The world didn't look the same anymore, especially to her. The stars were Barbara's passion in life, and the smoke and ash from the volcanoes not only affected the sun and made it a third darker during the day, it also impacted the moon and stars, making it a third darker during the night. It was their common interest in the stars that Barbara suspected had likely brought them together. With everything that was going on in the world, Barbara had forgotten about the dinner party until Josh asked if she was still going. The list of those attending had dwindled to near 20, and Josh didn't want to go alone. Barbara honestly didn't want to go to the dinner party or anywhere else, but Josh eventually convinced her that it was unhealthy to lose herself in grief. So, she finally told him that she would go to the party. After browsing online at dress after dress, she finally found one that she liked when all of a sudden, her phone buzzed with an email receipt of her purchase. The Neo monitor sounded. 
Barbara had to do a double take, but her suspicion was confirmed when one of the lines on the monitor flashed red. The object in question was 99,942 Apophis. New objects got cataloged almost daily, but this wasn't a new object, and very rarely did they come in hot like the one flashing on the monitor. Normally, a new object would be highlighted in green or yellow indicating that the object was coming close, but had virtually zero chance of collision with the Earth. A red flashing object meant that chances were optimal for collision. Meteorites come in contact with the Earth's atmosphere on a fairly regular basis, but most burn up before reaching the surface. Asteroids, however, are an entirely different beast. They tend to be larger, and therefore more dangerous, if they were to collide with the planet. Barbara looked at the data coming in on the NEO monitor and froze in disbelief. The weirdest thing was that this particular asteroid wasn't supposed to even pass close to the Earth until 2029. NASA had been monitoring this very same NEO and the estimated diameter of the object in question was listed at over 1200 feet, and it would impact Earth with kinetic energy equivalent to 1200 megatons of TNT. She had to call someone she had to call everyone. Not only that, but she had an emergency phone with a direct line to the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. This was an organization established by NASA in 2016. Should she call them, though? She didn't know, but she had to decide fast. These were the same people who had been assuring the public that this asteroid wasn't going to come close to striking the Earth, and that it wasn't even scheduled to pass us until 2029. They had said the same thing to the institute she worked for. They were the people who needed to be kept in the loop about asteroids, regardless of what they told the public. Furthermore, they monitored NEOs. Furthermore, they monitored NEOs. She realized that she didn't have time to worry about whether NASA had been lying about Apophis or not. She had to make the call, and she had to make it right then. If there was any way to possibly stop it, Hopefully there was still time left to do it before it made impact. Jared Parsons was a part of the PDCO as a NASA astrophysicist. He'd been getting one call after another from every observatory and private organization with a big enough telescope to get them an emergency line directly to NASA. Those emergency lines all came to his office, and Apophis had him in the office permanently until further notice. He was well aware of the incoming asteroid, so, he wasn't surprised when he got the call from Barbara in Alaska. Even though he was supposed to act completely shocked about the news, and it could cost him his job, he told her and everyone else that called, not to worry. They were aware of the situation, and had a plan in place that would hopefully remove the threat. It wasn't the kind of vague lie you'd expect from a government agency, if they had been lying about their knowledge of a situation like this. Maybe she was wrong about thinking they had been lying about the asteroid, at least since the volcanoes erupted. She felt a little better about the danger now that she knew there was at least a plan in place to remove the threat as there was no one that Jarred needed to call. Plans were already in place to break the asteroid up into smaller pieces because there was no way to destroy it. If there was, no one had thought of it yet, and there wasn't time to come up with any other solution now anyway. Besides, the technology being used to lower the threat from the asteroid was the most advanced in the world. It was a classified part of the Israeli Iron Dome defense program that even someone with Jard's clearance level wasn't aware of. Jard had worked for NASA for the past six years, 
and the 36-year-old astrophysicist had spent all day thinking about the amount of truth he'd learned compared to the number of lies he'd told since coming to work for the American Space Agency. He'd been an atheist or at least an agnostic for the majority of his life, including when he began his job at NASA. This was no longer the case. After seeing the all-out war that was being raged by NASA against the God of the Bible, as well as the many proofs that the Bible was accurate, Dard was completely convinced that God was very real. One of the things that stuck out the most in his mind was the lengths to which NASA always went to only attack the Christian God, while promoting and even naming their rockets, missions, and telescopes after gods of other religions. In 2021, he had started going to a small church in a small community outside where he lived in Houston. Jard had worked in Houston, Texas for the past two years of his career. Originally, he had worked at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., but after war broke out worldwide, he and several other scientists the government felt were too important to leave in D.C. where they would be in harm's way, were moved to the Johnson Space Center in Houston. There had been many larger churches that he could have chosen, but for some reason he couldn't understand at the time. He felt like something had led him to the small Anabaptist Fellowship. He wasn't very knowledgeable about the Bible before he started going to church. So, he didn't understand when the Anabaptists were one of the few groups of churches across the U.S. to reject Joshua Ben Yusuf's claims of being the Messiah in 2022. His pastor started preaching through the book of Revelation the Sunday after his proclamation. Chart had felt the Holy Spirit dealing with his heart for a while. The Sunday the preacher gave that first sermon on Revelation ended up being the last one Jard ever heard as a non-believer. He was thinking about that sermon and the day he surrendered his life to Christ and was baptized, as he took one call after another about the asteroid. The sermon was entitled The Seven Epistles of Jesus. The sermon was mostly about the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. What Jard remembered most, however, was how Jesus walks among his churches, and holds his messengers in his hand. This was especially comforting at that moment. Jard knew that the tribulation was well underway. He knew Joshua Ben Yusuf was the Antichrist and that this asteroid was certainly the fulfillment of the Revelation 8 prophecy. Jard felt the strongest sense of peace that he'd ever felt, and he knew that regardless of what happened, the one who walks among the candlesticks was in control. The door to Jard's office opened and the tallest man he'd ever seen walked in. The man was dressed and carried himself like a soldier, but he had long black hair and strange golden eyes. Jard opened his mouth to ask if he could help the man. Before he could say a word, Bain held up his hand, cutting Jard off. He scanned the office with his golden eyes. Bain finally looked over to Jard's desk. He fixed the gaze of his otherworldly looking eyes upon the King James Bible open in front of the astrophysicist. Do you always read fairy tales while you're at work? Bain said in a sarcastic voice. Jard was about to answer the giant who was taunting him. But again Bain held up his hand. Jard waited for the giant's next insult, but it never came. Instead of saying anything, Bain pointed to the file cabinet across the room. Jard turned his head to look instinctively. He never saw the gun and by the time he heard the silence shot, he was gone from this world. Jard knew that Christians were being killed. Bain killed two other brothers from his fellowship a week before. He had known the risks of following Christ. It was all worth it when Jesus told him, Well done my good and faithful servant. Chapter 5, Commander Bain. Coronado, California. 
Bane sat at the bar watching the news on television inside his favorite tavern, the Wooden Nickel. It was March 1st, 2024. He had done a lot of work in the last three and a half years that his father, nor Lucifer, would either give him credit for. While he was thinking about all his hard work, he noticed the TV as the bartender was going through the channels and finally stopped at the news on GNN. The same thing had been on every station. Israeli Prime Minister Joshua Ben Yusuf, who was also proclaimed the Messiah by religious leaders, was addressing the world from Israel. His address was regarding all he'd accomplished in the past three years. That was something Bain had to laugh at because the man couldn't accomplish his way out of a paper bag on his own. He was talking about the peace, safety, and stability that he brought to the Middle East and the world. Besides taking credit for single-handedly stopping World War III, he was also addressing the unprecedented amount of massive natural disasters that had devastated the world. The oceans had been ravaged by sulfur, one-third of all the trees, and most of all the green grass in the world had been destroyed. Supervolcanoes under the world's three major oceans had erupted, along with supervolcanoes in Wyoming's Yellowstone National Park, Lake Toba in Indonesia, and the Taupo Supervolcano of New Zealand. These unexpected mega-eruptions caused the death of one-third of all life within the sea and turned the ocean blood red. They also destroyed countless numbers of ships and created record-breaking earthquakes and tsunamis that completely devastated coastal regions around the world. The eruption sent so much smoke and ash into the atmosphere that the sun looked like it was covered with sackcloth. The moon looked like the color of blood. The stars couldn't be seen at all throughout the sky for a full third of the night. As a result, it was both one-third darker during the day and also throughout the night. This also seriously affected the bariatric pressure at both of the world's poles, which resulted in 2024 being the worst year on record for the number of hurricanes that made landfall. Moreover, because of the massive number of particles in the atmosphere, supercell thunderstorms with the largest, most powerful tornadoes ever recorded ravaged nations around the world. As if the earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and destruction of countless sea and wildlife wasn't bad enough, an asteroid larger than any that's hit the Earth in recorded history, collided with the Earth in December 2023. Scientists say that the asteroid 99,942 Apophis was 1,200 feet in diameter. It would have been catastrophic if the complete asteroid made impact with the Earth. It would have created a tremendous dust plume that would have enveloped much more of the planet, blocked out much of the Sun, and raised temperatures where the asteroid impacted. Millions more would have died. In fact, most of the life on the planet would have been affected, if it hadn't been for a secret project that's a part of the Israeli Iron Dome defense program. It was able to shatter the asteroid into seven smaller, but still large, pieces before it struck the Earth. These pieces crashed into seven major rivers around the world, destroying one-third of the world's freshwater supply, making it undrinkable, and killing everyone who drank it. Bain listened to the charismatic man that his father and uncle had not only made the most powerful and loved man in the world, but also the man who joined the three Abrahamic religions of Catholicism, Judaism, and Islam. This single-handedly brought peace between Catholics, Jews, and Muslims in the Middle East and allowed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Bain decided that he needed another drink. This was his fourth or fifth of the day, but it wasn't the only type of drink he was craving. He usually came in to find a beautiful woman and tap her jugular. It would have to do for now though, he was working, and he could not afford to piss his uncle off. Bartender, I'll take another. Make this one a double. 
The man behind the bar looked his customer up and down, practically forcing himself to speak. No, no disrespect, sir, but how are you going to pay for your tab? I, I mean, it's not even noon. At this rate, we'll drink my entire bar dry by dinner. Bane pulled a lock of long, dark hair away from his face. He reached inside his black trench coat. The bartender took a nervous step back. Bane ignored making eye contact with the man as he brought out several hundred dollar bills from his wallet and dropped them on the counter. Forget the double shot. I'll just take the bottle. Why, yes, sir. Right away, sir. The bartender's eyes were as large as full moons as he wrung his hands. Excuse me for asking about the money. It's just that, well, times aren't what they used to be. Please stay as long as you like. Still ignoring eye contact, Bane stared into his empty glass. The bottle. Oh, yes. The bar owner moved quickly for a man of his girth. He had a jug of whiskey by Bane's side in seconds. Bane was an extremely intimidating figure at 8 feet, 2.44 meters, with long dark hair and golden eyes. The bartender was used to seeing strange-looking individuals, so he didn't pay much attention to Bane's appearance. This was California after all. There were many legends and myths about creatures like Bane, and in modern times the world no longer believed supernatural beings like him existed. If this was a novel or a movie, Bane would be called a vampire, a creature of the night who couldn't survive in the sunlight. The truth of Bane's existence was much more frightening than vampires of fictional novels and Hollywood movies. Bane was a fallen Nephilim born of a fallen watcher mixed with a human woman. Sure, you could call Bane a vampire. Nephilim are the original vampires. Bane was almost 6,000 years old and one of the few Nephilim to survive the flood sent as the wrath of the Creator and Most High God. Bane would not have been able to survive if Bane's father wasn't the god of the sea. Many nations knew and worshipped Bane's father under different names. He was both Heka and Nun to the Egyptians. He was Poseidon to the Greeks, and Neptune to the Romans. Bane's father was no more a god than any other god of the ancient world. He was one of the fallen angels that the ancients worshipped as gods, but he could live and breathe underwater, and he passed that ability on to some of his offspring, which is how Bane survived the flood. Bane missed the old days when he was treated with the fear and respect someone as powerful as him deserved. The Dark Ages were glorious in his opinion. He owned the knights and always lived in a castle. Bane slaughtered people by the hundreds and reveled in the carnage. The 21st century wasn't so bad, though. He still killed whoever he wanted at night and had the power to get away with it. If he was honest, he missed the worship of ancient times the most. Bane, a leader of Red Cell, was in the bar on business today. A new recruit from the Navy SEAL Team 3 was supposed to meet him at the bar, and this human was supposed to be one of the best in the United States military. Bane wasn't so sure that bringing humans into Red Cell for anything besides food or slave labor was a good idea, but he knew better than to question his father. They had been recruiting more and more humans into Red Cell over the last year. Bane didn't know exactly what their purpose was, but he knew it had something to do with what they were planning to do after the opening of the Abyss and the release of the rest of the Watchers. Apollyon would soon be free from the prison that held him, along with the rest of Bane's uncles. Then Therian would fully rise, and they would have their revenge. Bane was so deep in thought that he didn't see Petty Officer First Class, Jason Thorne, as he entered the bar and sat down next to him. Commander Bane puffed Thorne reporting for duty, sir. At ease, sailor. There will be plenty of time fort protocol when we get to Red Cell Command. 
For now, you should have a drink because everything you thought you knew about the world you live in is about to change forever. Pardon me, Commander, it already has, sir. It feels like the world is coming to an end with the war and everything that's happened with the volcanoes and the asteroid. I've killed more enemies of America since Atlanta was bombed than I did in three tours in Afghanistan. Add that to the way it looks outside during both the day and at night, and it literally seems like we're in the apocalypse, Jason said with a serious look on his face. Maybe it is, but are you squid or are you a seal, son? Jason said, I'm a seal obviously sir and he ordered a double shot of Kentucky bourbon like Bane suggested. He wasn't sure what his new commander meant about his world changing, but one thing that he was sure of, he didn't like the feeling he got from him. Not to mention, he was the largest, most pale individual that Jason had ever seen. He hoped it was Bane's appearance that made him feel so uneasy. Jason had a foreboding feeling like he'd never had before. He knew he was in the presence of true evil. He imagined this is how he would feel in the presence of someone like Hitler, or Osama bin Laden. He ordered a final shot of bourbon and downed it as his commander got up to leave, and motioned for him to follow. As the two soldiers left the bar, Jason Thorne didn't realize the magnitude of what he was a part of, but he'd soon see. Chapter 6 Jeremiah Sanderson I've seen and killed real evil. I'm not talking about people. Well, I've killed them too, but no man compares to real evil. No man is capable of the same atrocities and chaos that real evil inflicts. I hunted giants during my first deployment to Afghanistan, and they are the epitome of evil. I'm a U.S. Navy SEAL and my name is Chief Petty Officer Jeremiah Sanderson. Furthermore, I've been serving in the Spec Ops community for 14 years now. Not only that, but I served as a SEAL for 8 years before joining the CIA and eventually Red Cell, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I've seen and killed the scariest things imaginable. Furthermore, I didn't tell anyone for a long time for fear of what would happen to me, but more importantly what would happen to my daughter. I relive the horrors of what I've encountered whenever I close my eyes to go to sleep at night. Many of my brothers in the spec ops and regular military communities have heard the stories of the evil that lies high in the mountain caves of Afghanistan. However, very few outside myself and units like mine have actually encountered them. I eventually encountered and even worked alongside these same evil creatures and if it's possible, things even worse. Once again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Navy SEALs are a tier 2 spec ops unit, along with the Army Rangers, the Green Berets, Marine Force Recon, and Marsoak. Tier 1 units consist of covert forces that you don't hear about, like Red Cell. The tier 2 spec ops forces consist of the top 0.1% of the military. Tier 1 only recruits the very best from tier 2. We all train for years for selection and qualification, and we all possess top secret security clearances. We're all excellent at killing, and we all will forfeit our freedom or our lives if we ever share what we have done for our government. The government uses spec ops units because we work in secret, and we are the best. We are well funded, and we can deploy anywhere in the world without congressional approval. You'll be shocked by how many countries that we've served in during both peace and war times. Our track record is impeccable, but usually closed to the public. My first encounter with real evil happened during one of my first deployments to Afghanistan. It was 2009, and I remember checking the computers in Kuwait while awaiting a C-130 to take me to Bagram in Afghanistan. I tried to keep my mind focused on the fact that I'd be leading the baddest soldiers on the planet. 
my seals and I would get the job done and I would make my team, squad, and platoon proud. We flew into Bagram at 2,200 hours with a couple of dozen other soldiers, all wearing our bulletproof vests and Kevlar helmets. The C-130 was dark, with only green light illuminating the inside. The surrounding soldiers glowed, looking almost like green aliens. When the C-130 landed, the ramp lowered, slamming hard on the cement runway with a loud metallic crack. I grabbed my gear and headed out into the dark. I led my team to the hooch in the Spec Ops gated community on base. It was a storage container which had three sleeping quarters divided by plywood. One of the rangers, a staff sergeant, found me about the time I found my sleeping quarters. He told me to throw on my gear and head to the tactical operations center. The commander had a mission for me. I stood in the tactical operations center in full gear, with my M4 hanging from my sling and my Glock in a leg holster. I looked at the dozens of TV screens and soldiers monitoring radios. The room was full of chatter, too much chatter. Something big was going on. The commander, a lieutenant colonel, introduced himself and told me that I was in the big leagues now. He told me to shut the F up and do exactly what the captain said. I'm a SEAL so following orders is second nature to me, but SEALs know that we are the best of the best in special operations. So shutting up and taking orders from a ranger, even a captain, was not something I liked doing. Like I said, SEALs are the best of the best, and we know it. At least that was my attitude in 2009. I'm now very much aware that I was a fool. Regardless of my feelings, I did what I was told, and he ushered me into a side room. As I looked around, I realized this wasn't going to be a normal mission. A staff sergeant sat at a table with seven others with bare sleeves, no ranger scrolls. I realized that this was an eight-man team of Green Berets. The commander started his brief, telling us that Team 318 had gone missing approximately four hours earlier in a desolate portion of the LSA mountains. Their last transmission had come in broken. They were escorting a CIA operative to a cave high in the mountains. That was all we were told. We were sent in for search and rescue. I was the only SEAL tagging along while my platoon was sent on another mission. I didn't realize at the time how blessed they were. The intel officer stepped in and provided as much detail as he could for the mission, while the commander pulled me out of the room. He said, we don't know what in God's name is going on. The CIA are being jerk-offs as usual. They left all the teams in the dark. So, I want you and the staff sergeant to gather as much intel as possible while you're out there. These pricks are getting our guys killed, and we don't know what for. I met the captain and his team at their vehicles, which were three Humvees that had been stripped down to basically look like dune buggies with mini guns mounted on top. The captain looked me in the eyes, and he had a steel resolve, but there was definitely worry behind his eyes. He raised his hands high above his head and said, Aim high. Roger that I responded, thinking that, he was telling me the enemy would be wearing body armor. He looked at me again with a fierceness in his eyes that I will never forget. Then he extended his arm completely above his head and said, no, AIM high. I nodded and we all loaded into the vehicles. I remember thinking to myself, is he telling me they're going to hit us from the top of the cave? I put it out of my mind as we took off in the pitch black, through the hot desert night. Furthermore, I was constantly scanning the perimeter, waiting to be ambushed on the road. I was the only one. The rest of the team were all looking straight ahead. They all seemed to know something that I didn't. 
they had zero concern for the road and seemed to be a thousand miles away in their minds. It was like the real threat exceeded anything we had seen from the Hijis we'd faced in battle. We hit the LSA mountains a couple of hours later, pulling into a small combat outpost and dismounting. All the captain said was ammo, grenades, water, and MVGs. I grabbed my assault pack, as one of the guys from the team tossed me a few grenades and extra mags. We stepped away from the command outpost, moving up the mountain in a watch formation. I remember thinking we were invincible as I looked at the gigantic warriors carrying M4 assault rifles, M2 sniper rifles, and grenade launchers. These guys had been in country a lot longer than myself and had probably taken down an entire Al-Qaeda unit by themselves. This was the only time I can ever remember not feeling superior as a Navy SEAL. I did feel superhuman with these fierce warriors, as we went up the mountainside. Little did I know what awaited us. We came upon the cave just as the sun was starting to come up behind the mountain. The sky was blood red, as the darkness turned into light and night turned to morning. The cave looked like the mouth of a giant serpent opened wide. The opening was on the other side of a ledge that stood 10 to 15 feet high. As we approached, the captain said, eyes out and keep your distance. As we got within 100 meters of the cave, I saw something shiny on the ground, and I signaled for the squad to halt. I called the captain over. It was a radio and the mic had been ripped completely off. It had dried black blood caked all over the side of it, and chunks of skin and tissue were all over the ground, littering the entire area. Fear turned to anger as we all started closing in on the mouth of the cave with our weapons pointed directly at the opening. As we were walking towards the cave, I was overcome with the worst smell imaginable. It was like rotten milk mixed with death. A moment later, I was overcome with an intense feeling of despair and hopelessness. It was not the adrenaline rush and heightened senses of a normal engagement. It just felt evil. Little did I know that it was a feeling I would later often feel in my country. About the time we were about 25 feet from the cave opening, two of the largest of what can only be described as monsters, charged out of the mouth of the cave at us. They were both between 8 and 10 feet tall, with long, matted, red hair and black eyes. They were naked apart from some kind of loincloth made from animal hide. At least I pray it was animal hide. I remember every detail like it was yesterday. They had red beards and the same red hair on their chests, arms, and legs. You would think that their size would be what I remember the most about them, but it isn't. I don't know if it's because I have since grown used to seeing them, or if that first encounter traumatized me so that I can't forget. Either way, the two things I remember most are the long canine fangs they had in the front of their two rows of teeth, and the extra digit on their hands and feet. I now know that I was overwhelmed with fear that day because of something they put off to confuse and incapacitate their victims, called infrasound. They didn't need the infrasound, however, because the way they looked along with the deep guttural growl they had as they charged out of that cave at us, was more than enough to strike paralyzing fear into the fiercest warriors alive. We all opened fire at the same time with our M4s, but it did very little. At that time in my life, I had never seen anything alive move that fast. Quickly, one of them reached the captain who had taken the lead position, and the other one reached his team of rangers. The first giant grabbed the captain by the throat, and the other one knocked all four of his men off the ledge of the mountain to their deaths. With its giant six-fingered hand, it lifted him off the ground like he was a small child. The monster then ripped out his throat with its fangs, 
draining the life force from him that was his blood. Then it dropped the completely pale captain to the ground dead. The eight green berets opened fire directly at the face of the giant vampire that had just killed the captain. I had already pulled the pin from one of my grenades and tossed it directly at the head of the other giant who'd killed his men. It was fast enough to catch it, but not fast enough to get rid of it before it blew up taking him to the ground and stunning him. It was at that moment that I heard a voice from inside my head that only said one word. Now, that's all I heard, but I knew exactly what I had to do. I ran as fast as I could to the giant laying on its back and opened fire with my M4 directly at its neck. I didn't take my finger off the trigger until I had fully decapitated the giant blood drinking monster. Not only that, but I could hear the rest of the team still firing on the one that killed the captain. But before I could turn around, there was a sharp pain in the back of my head and everything went dark. When I came to, my head was killing me. The giant that I'd killed was being lifted into the air by an extremely thick steel cable coming from a wench. It was bringing it up to be loaded into a modified C-130. The other one that had killed the captain was nowhere to be seen. I tried to ask the other men what had happened, assuming they were able to kill it, but they weren't talking. The looks on their faces were of pure anger. All they would tell me on the way back to base was that they were threatened with a court-martial if they said anything about the details of whom we engaged, or what happened after the mystery men arrived on the scene to me or anyone else. They also said that I would likely be getting a visit from the same people who threatened them. That was the day that I stopped worrying about winning the war on terror and started looking for answers. Kabul, Afghanistan, July 2012. 29-year-old Chief Petty Officer Jeremiah Sanderson sat in his jeep in the middle of the Afghani desert. He was waiting for his contact in the CIA. After about an hour, a tan Humvee finally pulled into the spot Jeremiah was told to wait. That was the meeting that changed his life forever. Jeremiah was recruited straight out of the Navy into the CIA. His position in 2012 as a Directorate of Intelligence Officer was a fancy way of saying analyst. He knew it was an opportunity that he still couldn't turn down. The job got him in the door at the CIA, so he could find out exactly what happened in the mountains of Afghanistan. He would also find out what was going on in the government of the United States, and who was giving the orders in the leadership of the military. He had seen and hunted giants after killing one in Afghanistan. He had seen things that most people didn't believe existed. Heck, he barely believed it, and he had lived it. He'd seen actual vampires that were at least eight feet tall monsters who drank the blood of soldiers. Then he'd discovered that these monsters weren't just random creatures living in the desert. They were being recruited there as soldiers of something called Red Cell. He found out that Red Cell was some kind of covert unit of the Navy. He had given six years of his life to the Navy. Had everything he'd done for the US government been based on a lie? He had to find out. That was the entire reason he had agreed to join the agency when CIA operative Elijah Carroll recruited him in Afghanistan. He moved up the ranks at the CIA as fast as he could without management thinking he had a personal agenda, and now he was no longer an intelligence officer. It was now 2024 and so much had changed. He'd spent 10 years working his way up the ranks and become a full-blown CIA operative with majestic level clearance before he left the agency. He gained all the intel that he could on Red Cell, through wiretaps and paid informants inside the Navy, Army, and even the Israeli Mossad. Furthermore, 
he was able to join Red Cell himself in early 2023, because of his time as a Navy SEAL and position at the CIA. Not only that, but he also discovered that the agency was involved in the same evil activities as Red Cell. The CIA was funneling money through massive credit card fraud and heroin production in Afghanistan to fund the black budget projects of Red Cell. He had reached out to his oldest and best friend Jason Thorne and convinced him to join Red Cell with Jeremiah's recommendation. Jeremiah had actually witnessed a human sacrifice as a part of some kind of satanic ritual when he joined Red Cell. He had learned and seen things about the government that were completely horrifying. At first, he truly believed that the Red Cell members and monsters from Afghanistan were just some kind of black budget super soldiers created in a lab, or maybe they were aliens. What he had learned, after putting all the puzzle pieces together, was something much, much worse. Jeremiah grew up in church, and although he had strayed away from his faith, he had been someone with Christian values for the majority of his life. At least, he believed that he had been. He knew the Bible, and the things that he learned and had witnessed with his own two eyes, brought everything he had read in the pages of scripture to life. He had completely surrendered his life to Christ in 2023, Furthermore, he was convinced that the disasters that had been happening were prophecy being fulfilled straight out of the book of Revelation. The humans who were in military leadership and high government positions were literally worshipping Satan and worse than that, he had come to believe that above those men and women in the military and government were actual fallen angels and demonic Nephilim. He had completely surrendered his life to Christ, and he had to get out of Red Cell before it was too late. That's why he recommended Jason because he needed help. He was all alone surrounded by evil in Red Cell. He joined the covert military unit to gather intelligence and find out exactly what was going on, but now he just wanted out. Furthermore, he required an exit strategy, and Red Cell was not an organization that you retired from or left willingly. He would rather not bring his best friend into this, but Jeremiah had a daughter to think about, and he also felt like God was leading him to bring Jason into this. Jocelyn was 17 and he was a single father. Jason was his oldest and best friend, but more than that, he was the strongest man and toughest soldier Jeremiah knew. If anyone could help him get out, it was Jason Thorne. Jason was supposed to arrive at Red Cell Command today. Jeremiah just had to get down there and find him to try to prepare him for what he would face when he joined what Jeremiah had come to call Satan's army. Jeremiah said a quiet prayer to himself as he drove towards the surface entrance of the deep underground North Carolina military base under the Harvey Point facility. Dear Lord, I humbly come before you now and ask for you to please be with Jason if he gets to the command center before I do. He's going to be facing true evil that is worse than anything he can imagine. Father, you gave me a second chance and redeemed me. So, I ask that you please do the same for Jason. I will share the gospel with him and tell him what you have shown and done for me. I just need the chance to be able to explain it all to him, Lord. Please strengthen him for what he will face, and give him the words to say when he does. He will want to follow his training instead of his instincts, but it might just get him killed. Guard his heart and his mind from the influence that the Admiral will have over him. These fallen ones that follow Lucifer are literally the origin of evil, and they are stronger than anything in this world. Thankfully, yours is the kingdom of heaven and may your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Lord lead Jason away from temptation and deliver him from the evil one. In Jesus' name, Amen. Chapter 7, Red Cell Command DUMB 
Commander Bain and Petty Officer First Class Jason Thorne arrived in North Carolina at the Harvey Point facility 30 minutes after leaving Coronado, California. Jason could not believe how fast the underground train moved. They exited the train and accompanied a group of around 10 soldiers in full uniform as they walked. Some of them were as large and strange looking as Bain. Commander Bain said, Gentlemen, this is Petty Officer First Class Jason Thorne. Welcome to Red Cell, Puff Thorne, said a very tall soldier. You're playing in the big leagues now. Jason simply gave a big smile and said, Ooyah, I'm glad to be here. All 12 soldiers entered an elevator that would take them down to the Red Cell Command Center. Jason did not know how far down they had gone, but he knew they were way underneath the mountain, and the elevator moved almost as fast as the train. They did not prepare Jason for what he saw when he exited the elevator into Red Cell Command. He honestly thought that someone had slipped him some LSD. The command center was larger than some cities in the US, and there were obvious occult symbols on the floors, walls, and ceilings. The place looked more like a command center for the Satanic Army than the US Navy, and some soldiers obviously were more than human. Most had taken the upgrade to become super soldiers, Whatever the gentleman was that Commander Bane was currently saluting, he definitely wasn't human, and Jason hadn't seen an upgraded soldier look like that. He was also obviously in charge of Red Cell altogether. He was taller than the commander, but instead of having black hair and golden eyes, he had beautiful blonde hair and blue eyes. Furthermore, he was actually the most beautiful being Jason had ever seen, and since Jason was the most heterosexual guy he knew, this was obviously no mere human. Not only that, but he looked like a super tall and muscular Legolas from Lord of the Rings, without the long hair. The commander motioned for Jason to come over and said, Petty Officer First Class Thorn, meet Admiral Armoros. Jason saluted at once. He could not believe that he was actually being introduced to the Chief of Naval Operations and Admiral of the entire Navy. Every Navy SEAL knew who Admiral Armoros was, although very few had ever met him. Jason learned from overhearing two Green Beret guys talking, the Admiral was also Commander Bane's father. That was the least strange thing that Jason learned that day. The Admiral is going to raise your clearance level to Majestic, and he would like for me to fill you in on a few things. The Admiral looked at Jason and said, First you must pass a test of loyalty that all new Red Cell recruits must pass. Only then will you be fully debriefed. Jason wasn't sure what kind of test the Admiral was talking about. The feeling in his gut told him it wouldn't be the kind you take in a classroom. He was pretty sure that he definitely wasn't going to like it. From the satanic looking symbols and occult sigils on the walls, ceilings, and floors, he felt sure that life and death may hang in the balance of how someone did on this test. The little he knew about Red Cell made Jason believe that it was the type of military organization that very few knew about, even in the highest ranks of the government and the military. He doubted it was the type of unit that anyone simply retired from or left on their accord. He had only agreed to join Red Cell because his oldest friend and former member of his SEAL team, Jeremiah Sanderson, had recommended him after being a member of Red Cell himself. Jeremiah had been recruited from the CIA into Red Cell. Jason had yet to see Jeremiah since arriving at the Underground Command Center, but he hoped he would see him soon. He had a lot to ask his oldest friend about, and he wanted to know what in the world was going on in this secret military unit that had obvious satanic symbols all over the command center. The next issue was all the soldiers who were either were given a different upgrade than others, or clearly were not human. 
Jason followed Commander Bane and the Admiral to a gigantic room with two massive pillars that rose from the floor to the very high ceiling, where they were connected and formed an archway. That was where you walked through after going inside the door. Against the center of the far wall of the room, there was what looked like an ancient throne that belonged in a castle somewhere with some kind of rectangular granite structure with symbols Jason had never seen before engraved around the sides as well as a metal basin all around the structure on the floor that stood across from the throne about 20 yards away. He truly couldn't believe what he was seeing. This was a US military base, after all. Jason had been on bases all over the world, including secret military installations, and he'd never seen anything like this. The only thing that looked remotely like it belonged on a military base were the uniformed spec ops soldiers and military-grade computers that he'd seen inside the facility's War Command Center, the War Room, or WarCom. Jason had felt fear many times throughout his military career. He'd felt it at the beginning of an op or when he'd come close to death, but he'd never felt fear like the fear that seemed to envelop him when he entered that room and walked through the archway. He looked at Commander Bane to see if he saw anything that showed that he was feeling whatever was causing Jason's fight or flight instincts to be so strong. Bane had a look of what Jason thought seemed like excitement. The Admiral went and sat on the ancient looking throne as Jason watched Bane walk over to the circular structure where another soldier was waiting holding a hooded man with his hands and feet bound. Jason had no idea when or how they entered because he'd seen no one when they walked in. The soldier laid the bound man flat on the granite structure like it was an altar. Then he just walked to the far side of the room where he exited out of a door in the corner. That must be the way he entered with the bound man without Jason noticing. It was then that the Admiral spoke in a voice that Jason didn't hear with his ears. He heard the Admiral inside his head, and it was the strangest thing that Jason had ever experienced in his life. What you are about to witness will undoubtedly seem barbaric to you, but dishonor and disloyalty only have one solution. I don't care whether my soldiers love or fear me, as long as they obey my every command unquestionably. The way you react and what you decide to do afterwards will determine what I decide about where your loyalty lies. This is your test, Jason Thorne. This is your initiation into the ancient order of the Red Cell, Admiral Armoros said, finally speaking out loud. It was then that Commander Bane moved from beside the Admiral to the bound man so fast, Jason barely saw him move. He pulled off the man's hood, grabbed him by the hair, and cut his throat with a knife Jason never saw in his hand. Jason saw Bane watching him. He knew they were both trying to gauge his reaction to what had just happened. He didn't know what was going on, and he didn't have a clue where the words in his mind came from, but he knew that it was what he had to say. Whoever he was, I'm sure he deserved it, or you had a good reason to kill him. What I really want to know is how can I get the power to move that fast? Admiral Armoros laughed loudly. Yes, I have a good reason for everything I do. You crave power like the rest of my men. If you can follow my orders unquestionably, you will be given power beyond your wildest dreams. Jason knew he had to find Jeremiah as soon as possible so he could find out exactly what was going in this hellish place and what kind of alien monsters the Admiral and Commander Bane were. They sure as heck weren't human. He didn't know how he was going to get out of this one alive. But he sure as heck wasn't going to end up with his throat cut on top of the altar to some alien god or whatever unholy thing from hell the Admiral was. Chapter 8 Revelation 9. 
the abyss and release of the watchers. Revelation 9 1-11 One and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to whom was given the key of the bottomless pit. Two and he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Three and there came out of the smoke locust upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Four and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Five unto them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion, when he striketh a man. Six and in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Seven and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. Eight and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. Nine and they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. Ten and they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Eleven and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Joshua ben Yusuf secretly had teams of archaeologists working in different places around the world. One team in particular was led by world-renowned archaeologist Chandler Davidson. They were searching for antediluvian artifacts and excavating monoliths all around the vicinity of ancient Anatolia, Babylon, and Samaria. Today they were searching the area of Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. They had the archaeologists following the diary of a 19th-century explorer and archaeologist by the name of Maxwell Oppenheim. Joshua Ben Yusuf had been given the diary by a very high-ranking naval contact in America, Admiral Armoros. The diary had led the team to many artifacts that Ben Yusuf had been very excited about. He had them digging at various locations along the Tigris and Euphrates beginning in Turkey and finally to their latest dig site in northeastern Syria. It was originally discovered by Oppenheim himself in 1899. The dig at Tel Halif had not been excavated for many years and had just resumed only months prior, but Chandler felt confident that he could deliver on time. When the Prime Minister Yusuf reached out to him in April, Chandler had been apprehensive because he had been injured at the previous dig that the diary had led him to in Eridu. The largest most horrific creature that Chandler had ever seen was apparently living inside an ancient temple that they had excavated in Eridu. The beast would have looked human if it wasn't for his 10-foot height, six digits on his hands and feet, and the enormous fangs he used to almost drain Chandler of all of his blood. The pain from the creature's bite had lasted over a month, although it had deteriorated over time. After a couple weeks, Chandler had become somewhat accustomed to the ache in his neck. Even though he was apprehensive, Chandler made sure to accept the opportunity without pause from the man who had been dubbed by every major religion as the Savoir of the world. The last thing he wanted was to have a man powerful enough to bring peace to the Middle East upset with him. The rest of his team were even more apprehensive. Janet reluctantly agreed to help, and it took some effort to sway Kimberly and David to his side. Scotty who had been working with Chandler the longest, was having nothing of it and a day after Chandler reported back to the Prime Minister, Scotty was found dead in his apartment. It was clear that this wasn't a man who took no for an answer. The new guy Robert was an adequate enough addition to the team, but Chandler missed Scotty's knowledge of ancient civilizations. 
Robert, can you grab the notebook from my tent? Chandler asked. It's on the nightstand next to my bed. The one great thing about working for someone as powerful as Joshua Ben Yusuf, he spared no expense. Their tent complex seemed more like a large home than a tent. The beds were comfortable and it had many of the modern comforts that society relied on. Chandler didn't know the significance of the artifacts that Prime Minister Yusuf desired, but he knew that they dated back to the early Halif period, which presumably took place between the 3rd and 4th millennia BC. He just knew that it was important to the man he'd come to partly worship, but mostly feared and was therefore important to him and his team. Finding the entrance to the Western Palace was the first point of interest for the team. Joshua Ben Yusuf recommended they start there. When Max von Oppenheim first discovered the site in 1899, the Western Palace had been completely buried by sand. It had been the story from a local villager that prompted Oppenheim to dig a test pit. This test pit uncovered the entrance to the Western Palace. Because he didn't have permission to excavate, it wasn't until 1911 that Oppenheim was able to return to the site and continue his exploration. Here, Robert said, as he handed Chandler the notebook. Chandler held Oppenheim's diary in his hand as he wondered at the trials that Oppenheim went through to bring so many artifacts back to Berlin, only to have them destroyed in a fire caused by British bombing efforts during World War II. Although some of the sculptures had been recreated out of tens of thousands of fragments, many of the artifacts still remained broken. It was the Scorpion's Gate which piqued Chandler's interest. The winged scorpion men that guarded the entrance were of vast importance. It was a creature similar to the tattoo on the giant vampire creature who attacked him in Eridu. For the longest time, Chandler tried to convince himself that he was wrong, but in the end, he determined that so much of what the world called mythology was turning out to be true. Who knows what type of monsters existed, still exist, for all I know, Chandler said under his breath. What? Janet asked, as she walked up to him. Chandler ignored her question and flipped to the page marked by a red ribbon and quickly reread Oppenheim's notes about what lay beyond the Western Palace entrance. His notes reference a door several meters past the Scorpion Gate, Chandler explained. Janet nodded and was about to reply when Chandler continued, the Scorpion Gate once stood there, pointing forward. Chandler looked to the northern horizon, past the Haber River and toward the neighboring city of Selampener, Turkey, which lay on the border between Syria and Turkey. The entrance is somewhere between here, Chandler said, pointing at the hole where the scorpion men who guarded the scorpion gate were found, and there, he added, pointing to the southern edge of the citadel. The citadel was uncovered in the early 2000s by a group of archaeologists. We've dug down almost three meters and still haven't found any evidence of this door, Janet replied. Chandler only nodded and smiled as he felt his hand fall upon a lever, a mixture of fear and excitement surged through his body when his hand fell upon a lever. Gripping the lever, Chandler pulled toward him and the team heard a satisfying click. Before their eyes, a rectangular outline began to appear. As Chandler removed his hand from the hole, the sand that lined the rectangle began to fall. Within minutes, the sand ceased to drop and the clear outline of the door was visible. Chandler gave a slight push on the rectangular door and the team began their historic journey. Grabbing a flashlight and a headlamp from Janet, he turned and led the way into the unknown. A small room opened up around them as the team entered, bringing light where none had been for thousands of years. The walls were covered with paintings and carvings. The central figure was Enki himself, with a river flowing from both of his shoulders. The god of fresh water indeed, Chandler whispered. The team was giddy with anticipation and could barely contain themselves. 
What is this? Kimberly asked. Kimberly was the youngest member of the team but she was very qualified and had proven herself, nearing her one-year anniversary with the group. She was pointing at a carving of a winged horse-like creature with a woman's face. Its long tail curled upward over its back and had a scorpion-like stinger at the end. Chandler moved toward the figure and slowly shook his head. In all his long years of study, he'd never seen anything like it. It was unlike any creature found in Sumerian or Akkadian mythology. I don't know what that is, Kimberly. It is something that I've never seen. David lifted his camera and took a picture of the amazing beast. He'd been with Chandler the second longest, but he was the oldest member of the team at 53. Scotty rounded out the group before he had been killed but now Robert was the final member of the team. His specialty was Mesopotamian mythology and lore. Although not wanting to leave the exquisitely preserved room, Chandler urged his team forward through a doorway to the right. An equally striking hallway ran approximate 10 feet before making way to a rectangular shaft that went downward. A stone staircase led downward around the outer walls of the space, with a small three-foot square landing in each corner of the shaft. In the center, there was a small four-by-four-foot opening, whose bottom couldn't be seen. Chandler popped a light stick and dropped it into the opening. The stick fell what looked to be 40 or 50 feet, and provided a view of the four sections of stairway on each wall. Let's go, Chandler said, waving them forward. The walls of the shaft were carved and painted similarly to the entrance room and hallway. When they reached the bottom of the fourth section of stairs, Chandler found an arched doorway to his left. Beyond the arch, a passage led approximately 10 feet before turning left 45 degrees and traveling 10 feet more. Chandler let out an audible gasp when the room around him became clearer. Incredibly, the room was a perfect hexagon, with each wall adorned with unimaginable imagery. The ceiling rose more than 60 feet in a perfect hexagonal cylinder, capped off with a painting that rivaled Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. We need to set up lights throughout this room. Robert and Kimberly go up and get our big lights. I'd like them set up within the hour, Chandler commanded. As Robert and Kimberly rushed back to the surface, Janet spoke. Chandler, you have to see this. Janet stood at the center of a dark circle that was aligned perfectly in the middle of the room. Clang the sound of his heavy boots stopped him in his tracks. That sounded like metal. He went down on one knee to better examine what seemed to be a metal plate that made up the huge circle. This can't be, Chandler mumbled, as he brushed the dust across the metal floor. Metallurgy wasn't known in this region until the 6th century BC. Look at this carving, Janet exclaimed. Chandler stood and made his way to where she was standing. What is this? Janet questioned, pointing at the seven-headed beast that graced the center of the plate. Shaking his head, Chandler replied, I have no earthly idea what that is. Janet, this is impossible. The ancient Sumerians didn't have the knowledge, let alone the tools, to craft something like this in metal. How big do you think this plate is? 50 feet in diameter, maybe, Chandler replied. Incredible. That doesn't even begin to describe it. What do you think it is? I'm sorry, Janet, but I'm at a total loss. I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Sumerian civilization, but this writing is unknown to me. This isn't Sumerian or Akkadian, Chandler replied, as he brushed his hands over the script inlaid in metal. Boss, look at this, David declared. He was standing next to one of the six walls. Chandler and Janet walked over to him. Before them, 
The massive walls along with the huge metal plate with the image of the seven-headed beast, were covered in an ancient language that definitely wasn't ancient Sumerian or any language that they recognized. Chandler looked at David and Kimberly, let's head back up to the surface for a minute. I want to make a quick phone call. The three of them climbed the ancient stairs and had just reached the surface when suddenly there was a low sounding of what many Jewish scholars would have identified as a shofar. American students of music may have thought it to be a trombone or a trumpet. The low sound raised an octave and then faded away. What was that? Kimberly asked, as she came up from behind. I don't know, but I swear I heard something that sounded exactly like that before the volcanoes erupted all over the world and again before that asteroid hit. David told her in a scared voice. I knew coming here was a bad idea, Robert exclaimed. Calm down, nothing bad is going to happen to us here. Chandler began when suddenly there was a shimmer over the Haber River. At first, it reminded Chandler of a rainbow or maybe the Aurora Borealis. Just above the river was a layer of green light and above that, a layer of reddish pink that blended into a purple, ending in a layer of blue that extended upward. The entire rainbow was at least 100 feet tall and stretched out across the horizon, seemingly following the path of the river. What the? David trailed off. Chandler turned to David. I have no idea. The light show lasted several minutes before there was a sudden flash and accompanying crackle. It reminded Chandler of sparks that might jump from an electrical outlet when a short was present. With the flash, the rainbow was replaced by an endless black curtain that followed the same path. The sky seemed to darken a bit and suddenly there was a sonic boom and the brightest flash any of them had it ever seen. Then, standing in front of them was the most beautiful man that any of them had ever seen and seemed to literally glow. So beautiful in fact, Chandler was very sure that this was no man who now stood in front of him. Chandler was about to open his mouth to ask what he now believed was an angel, where he had come from and what was going on, when the man waved his hand and Chandler and his entire team passed out. The angel walked away from the sleeping archaeologist and made his way down into the ancient chamber that held the door to the abyss. The angel took out an ancient-looking key that was at least a half a foot long and bent down to the door of the abyss. Underneath the image of the seven-headed beast a keyhole up here and inserted the key, turned, and then removed it. He climbed stairs to the surface and was gone as fast as he arrived. Down in the ancient chamber the door to the abyss slid open and a low series of howls rose from the uncharted depths. A thunderous sound began to grow out of the hole. Clunk, clunk suddenly. The ceiling cracked into six triangular sections and began to open. Dirt and dust began to fall from the broken ceiling of the chamber. Clear of debris, the ceiling now opened to the sky above as the thunderous sound grew from below. Lucifer materialized from out of the spirit realm into the room just as thick black smoke shot out of the hole and continued upward out through the ceiling. Moments later the first creature shot out from the hole. The thing was hideous. It had four legs and was at least twice the size of a large horse. Its wings spanned 20 feet in either direction. The most surprising aspect of the monster was its human-like face. Its face was twisted and evil-looking and only slightly less terrifying, the long scorpion-like tail that swung out over its body. Riding the creature was a fearsome-looking watcher wearing what looked a lot like the armor of a Roman soldier, with a crown on his head. Lucifer smiled an insidious smile. Apollyon my friend, you are free, Lucifer yelled, as the rest of the hellish horde appeared. Apollyon commanded the creatures in some unknown language as they exited their prison, before turning back to Apollyon who turned to Lucifer. Master, we are here to serve, Apollyon exclaimed. 
you know what must be done, Lucifer replied as Apollyon leapt into the air on the beast and flew out into the sky. The last of the monsters exited the shaft and continued to fly upward, but at the last minute, one turned and flew back down. It made a beeline for Chandler, who had just come to and began to run. Chandler ran toward the passage, but was too late. The beast was on him in the blink of an eye. The monster held him down as it turned to face him. The human-like face looked upon him with delight and began to smile. Its teeth looked more like the fangs of a lion. Chandler couldn't help but remember being attacked by the giant vampire as he prepared himself for a painful death. But just as fast as it landed upon him, the creature released him and flew away, almost like it had been summoned. Chandler didn't have a clue what was going on but one thing was for sure, he was out of this line of work. Chapter 9 The Identity of the Two Beasts Since 2020, Rabbi Joshua Ben Yusuf had been the talk of every major prophecy pundit, YouTube theologian, and biblical scholar in the entire Christian, Jewish, and Islamic communities, after religious leaders from both the Jewish and Muslim communities each started hinting that he was the only one who could bring peace between the two religions. He was already one of the most powerful and loved men in the entire world at the age of 29. He was the youngest Secretary General in the history of the United Nations when he was appointed in December of 2020. As Secretary General and finally Israeli Prime Minister, Joshua Ben Yusuf was able to bring to life the dreams of generations of Jews when the Third Temple was finally finished in October of 2024, after almost two years of construction. The treaty was seemingly miraculous that made it possible for the rebuilding of the Third Temple. It also created an official joining of the Catholic Church, Islam, and Judaism. This involved the complete remodeling of the Temple Mount and included the demolition of the Dome of the Rock that was replaced by a massive temple complex with all three religions, the Catholics, Jews, and Muslims to worship. This allowed the Jews to reinstate the Levitical priesthood and restart temple sacrifices, and it allowed the Muslims to continue to visit one of Islam's most holy sites, while also providing a place for Catholics to have Mass. Rabbi Joshua ben Yusuf had been born in Israel from a Jewish mother and Palestinian father. He made history again in 2022 when he became Prime Minister of Israel after the formation of a new ultra-religious government. The brand new government was led by the brand new Sanhedrin and even allowed Palestinians to have the same rights as Jewish citizens. This made Joshua ben Yusuf the most powerful political leader in the Middle East if not the world, as well as the top religious leader of the Jews, Muslims, and Catholics who had become one religion after the war. He had just gotten started good in his rise of power. In December 2023, at the dedication of the new temple, he announced on international television that an ancient holy text had been found. He proclaimed to the world that he was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the Holy Hari of the Hindus, Lord Maitreya of the Buddhists, the Mahdi of Islam and the second coming of Jesus Christ for the Catholics. He proclaimed that each of these saviors were the same man, and he was this man. This was confirmed by the most influential rabbis of the world, the Pope of Rome, all of the leading sheikhs, imams, and grand muftis, the Dalai Lama, as well as the swamis of India. They had all gotten a visit from Lucifer posing as either the angel Gabriel, an ascended master, 
or a fully manifested God. Joshua ben Yusuf was sworn in as the Prime Minister of Israel the next week. The Pope, the Dalai Lama, and also the Protestant evangelical leaders of the largest churches in America have all endorsed him after a meeting of the newly formed World Ecumenical Council in Jerusalem. Many people believed him, but others did not. This would soon change. Inside the throne room at Red Cell Command, Lucifer sat on his throne. The altar the watchers used to sacrifice their victims was replaced with a marble table. Amorous Balzebov, Malik, Mammon, Anatos, Commander Bain, and the newly freed Apollyon were seated at the table as Lucifer's top lieutenants in the war against the Kingdom of Heaven. The human soldiers all referred to the command center as the War Room, but this was the true War Room. This was where all of the real strategy took place. This throne room had many like it in strategic places around the world, where Lucifer's council met throughout the centuries. It was always the same, with Lucifer's throne located in the center of the room and his top lieutenant seated at the marble table in front of him. They were all copies of the original that sat on top of Mount Hermon. Bain was the only one at the table who was not completely an angel. Although he was born and not created like his father and uncles, Bain was 6,000 years old and one of the original sons of the fallen dot in the eyes of the watchers he had earned his place at the table. There was over a thousand years where Bain ruled over the kingdom of darkness in the physical plane for Lucifer and his father, while they worked from the shadows in the spirit world. They had to work through the sons of disobedience which Bain ruled over as a type of antichrist during the dark ages on the earth. The spirit of antichrist had been unleashed when Lucifer and the other old gods were banished to the earth after the battle with the archangels. There had been many sons of disobedience who were filled with the spirit of antichrist. None of those humans had the potential or power to be the physical manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist. Only Bain believed that he held the power of evil to fill those shoes. That time was long past, but it earned him his place at the table where he now sat. They were gathered around the table today discussing two very important operations that had been set into motion over 20 years ago, and had just come to fruition with the opening of the abyss and freedom of Apollyon and the Watchers. The next item of business and first operation was the huge coordinated dissolving of the nations like America, Great Britain, France, and others for the establishment of a one world order. The final world order would be made up of a ten-region federation, ruled over by the final Antichrist. Lucifer and Armoros had set the stage for the rising of a new Nero, with the help of the puppet President of the United States in coordination with the former Secretary General of the UN, who was now the new Prime Minister and Messiah of Israel. All the world would be ruled over by one king. That was something the world hadn't seen since Nimrod. Mammon and Armoros had used the secret societies to overthrow the monarchies in the 18th century and set up republics and democracies. They created a generation of people who no longer worshipped the God of Heaven, but worshipped Mammon instead. The worship of Mammon fueled progress, lead to the worship of Lucifer, and the other old gods. It made this final stage in the war possible. The one who would be the king over the Federation and world government was none other than Joshua ben Yusuf. The second item of business was the expansion of Lucifer's army of human hybrids that would be as strong and live as long as Bane. The militaries of the world called them super soldiers. Lucifer needed his army of hybrids to be a million strong and join the army of the abyss if there was any hope of taking on the hosts of heaven.
One of his main goals was to make every human on the planet want to be exactly like the soldiers in his army so that when the time came to offer their strength and immortality to the people of the world in exchange for their allegiance, they would be willing to worship him as Messiah in order to receive it. When Lucifer was still known as the Watcher Samael, he influenced Nimrod. Samael used his puppet Nimrod to try and build a portal in Babel that led to the third heaven and throne room of God. The attack on heaven never happened because God confused the languages and scattered the people across the world. After Lucifer was cast down to earth, he raised up Nero hoping that he would be the one to destroy all the followers of Christ and be his own image bearer. But Nero died and his spirit had been locked in the abyss with the Watchers. The abyss had been opened and the Watchers had been set free and they brought forth the spirit of Nero with them. He was evil before being twisted, tortured, and turned into the Therian for 2000 years in the abyss. Now they would have another chance with the entire army of the fallen along with all the sons of disobedience. They had used the secrets of heaven to create technology that not only changed the DNA of the soldiers, but also completely opened them up to receive and lock in the spirit of a Nephilim so it completely took over the soldier's body and could never be removed. This not only would give a body to the unclean spirits that Lucifer controlled on earth, but it also would give a body to the imprisoned spirits of the original Nephilim along with Therian spirit. They had been locked in Tartarus with the Watchers for thousands of years. It had taken almost 20 years to perfect the technology to indwell Nero's, Therian, spirit into a body using the same process used to turn the humans into hybrids. Lucifer had influenced mankind for the last 2000 years waiting on the time when his servant could rise again. The whole world will marvel at the beast who was, is not, and rises out of the abyss. Bain had been listening to Lucifer and his father talking about Therian's rise through the power from the blood of all the men who had been sacrificed on the ancient altar that stood in the middle of the throne room where he was now sitting. He had not understood why they insisted on bringing so many humans into Red Cell, but he finally understood. Every human that they recruited would either be used as a sacrifice for Therian's rising, or they would become a super soldier in Lucifer's army. Bane was as strong as Balzebub and as powerful as his father, but he knew that it was Lucifer who was truly powerful. The reason he was the god of this world and ruler of all of the fallen, old gods, was because of his intelligence. He had supernatural power like the other Watchers and he had plenty of strength, even if he wasn't as strong as Balzebub. His true power rested in his nearly perfect mind. He was always five steps ahead of everyone else and was able to anticipate what someone wanted without having to penetrate their mind like Armoros. Bane had sat in the seat of power that Therian would rule from, and he coveted that seat and power more than anything else. He was sitting at the table with the gods and had earned his place. If the opportunity arose to take the place of Therian, Bane wouldn't hesitate to seize it. He would enlist the help of his father, he wouldn't use his strength, speed, or power to become the final Antichrist. He would think like Lucifer and use the greed and desires of those who stood in his way to seize control, and he would make sure they thought it was their idea. He would be working on his plan to take the throne, but right now he had a mission to carry out. Red Cell was about to destroy three governments at once and reorder the world. 
This would pave the way for Therian to take control through of the new World Federation, made up of 10 regions instead of the many nations that made up the old order. This mission wouldn't be the kind of attack Red Cell normally carried out with bombs or assassinations, although Red Cell certainly had the soldiers and weapons to take over every country in the world. It wasn't yet time for that and Lucifer needed every soldier he had for the fight with heaven. This was an attack on the hearts and minds of the cattle of this world. The new world order was actually the ancient world order, controlled by the old gods. While his soldiers were carrying out their mission to destroy the old world order, Lucifer would be putting his champion spirit inside of Joshua ben Yusuf and getting him ready to take the throne. Lucifer had the world in the palm of his hands and he was rearranging it like putty. The people were his puppets especially the ones who didn't believe he existed. The rulers of every nation in the world now worship Lucifer as God, and soon everyone would worship him through his puppet champion. The world's rulers were more than happy to deliver their people for the promise of wealth, power, and immortality. He had taken control of the world through flatteries and the nations of Earth didn't go out with a bang, but with a whimper. Commander Bane had 10 companies of 100 Red Cell super soldiers getting ready to move out to 10 different strategic regions of the world for Operation Dark Dominion. His soldiers were to oversee the transfer of power and make sure the covenant was signed and confirmed before the summit at the temple in Jerusalem where Therian would become king. He was the bringer of peace. All who worshipped him would have a place in his kingdom. Lucifer had his best scientists working side by side with his best sorcerers and necromancers to lock his spirit into the vessel of Rabbi Ben Yusuf. Lucifer was worshipped by both the Kabbalistic Jews as one of the aspects of Ein Sof, and the Muslims worshipped him as Allah. So he had no trouble convincing both sides that Joshua was their promised savior. Joshua ben Yusuf is the ruler Lucifer had chosen to be the vessel for the spirit of Therian. Joshua ben Yusuf would soon die and Nero would rise again. Both the natural and supernatural world would soon see the beast that had the deadly head wound rise again, and they will all marvel after the beast and say who is able to make war with him? They will worship the beast and the dragon who gives power unto the beast. Lucifer would soon rule over a world that he created and be worshipped by those who were made in his image. The whole world would be united into one world government, with one world religion, made up of people who worshipped the old gods. Anyone who refused would be put to death. Everything was in order except for one last move on a chessboard. Lucifer summoned Bane to the throne room. Commander Bane, do you think I am not able to anticipate your desires because you are born of the Watchers? I know exactly what it is your heart desires and the schemes you are plotting in your mind. Do you think I am king of the gods for nothing? Do you think your ruthless father and uncles have not tried to steal dominion of this earth from me over the millennia since I took possession of it? Have ambition and I admire that nephew. In fact I have decided to reward your ambition and allow you to go before my son and be his Elijah. Every messiah needs a prophet, after all. You are already a master Kabbalist and sorcerer, and you will be granted all the power and authority that he has and you will be in charge of worship. You will make sure the entire world worships our dark trinity. You know that name, do you not? That is what the Watchers have always called the three highest ruling gods. 
your father, Baal, and myself have always made up the Dark Trinity. Now you, Therian, and I will be the final Dark Trinity who rules the entire universe. We have conquered Earth and we will soon conquer Heaven as well. Your father will be proud when you lead the mission that will unite the world. You will go ahead of my champion to Israel. Do what's necessary to get rid of Joshua ben Yusuf. Then when Therian rises, go with him to the coronation ceremony at the temple. You will be his voice crying in the wilderness and prepare the way for his resurrection. His kingdom will be ready and waiting for his return. Go now nephew and prepare the way of the Lord. Bane smiled as he bowed to his uncle Lucifer. Dark shadows from Lucifer's hands that looked like black smoke moved across the floor and entered into Bane. He felt a surge of power like he had never felt before. Bane also knew that the power his uncle had given him also gave him complete access and control over Bane when and if Lucifer wanted it. Bane was no longer simply a Nephilim. He could feel Lucifer's presence at all times and he wondered if all three of them would be connected when Therian arose. He would find out soon enough because it was time for Therian to ascend. Chapter 10. The Death of Jason Thorne Petty Officer First Class Jason Thorne was met by a uniformed Green Beret at the door out of the room where he had just witnessed the two most evil beings he had ever encountered murder a man in cold blood on top of what he could only describe as a pagan altar. Jason knew that although he did not understand why they killed the man how and where they had, they killed him in front of Jason to test his loyalty and ability to follow orders. At least that's the only reason he could think of at the moment. Jason had killed many people throughout his military career, and he had almost been killed many times himself, but nothing that he had experienced felt anything like what he felt watching Bane murder a complete stranger. Jason could not get over the way that the Admiral was able to get into his mind, or the way Bane moved his superhuman speed when he ran from beside the Admiral to the altar and cut the man's throat. He also couldn't stop thinking about the way he just knew what to say and how the words just came into his mind almost like the way the Admiral spoke to him using his mind, but this was different. What the Admiral did felt like someone was invading his mind and he knew that if the Admiral had wanted to, he could have made Jason think or do whatever he wanted. This didn't feel like an evil invasion of his mind. It felt peaceful and somehow just felt right deep down in his heart. Jason was so deep in thought that he had just been following the uniformed soldier without paying attention to where they were going. He was so lost that he didn't hear Jeremiah call his name the first time. They had just stepped out of the elevator into the war room when he heard Jeremiah call his name the second time. Puffthorn, it's good to see you found the command center all right. Jason looked up at Jeremiah and he truly had never been so happy to see someone in his entire life. Chief Petty Officer Sanderson, it's good to see you, sir, Jason said, saluting Jeremiah. It's Agent Sanderson now, Thorne, so you don't have to salute me. We should go grab a bite to eat and catch up while we can if you feel up to it. I have a few things I'd like to run by you and I'm sure you probably have some questions about protocol here at Red Cell Command, Jeremiah said, trying to sound casual. Absolutely, sir, I mean Agent. You know me, I'm up for anything and I'm actually starving. I've heard the base has some of the best restaurants in North Carolina. Jason replied. Jeremiah smiled. 
Yeah, it's actually the biggest city in the state and most people don't know it exists, which means it isn't overcrowded like most cities. Apart from a few government officials, there are no civilians here to ruin the place. Jeremiah said laughing. But I actually wanted to take you topside though if that's alright. Jocelyn has been dying to see you and she's out of school for spring break the rest of this week. We can pick up some takeout on the way to my house. Jason definitely wasn't going to turn down a chance to get out of this underground installation of evil. Instead of saying what he was thinking Jason just said, sounds like a plan to me. I'm definitely not going to pass up an opportunity to see my goddaughter. Niederman said a word as they entered the elevator to the surface of the military base at Harvey Point. They rode up the extraordinarily fast elevator without speaking as well. In fact, neither man said anything until they were completely off the military base and driving down the road in Jeremiah's Jeep. What in the literal hell have you got me into Jeremiah? Jason exclaimed once he felt like it was safe to talk. Jeremiah looked at Jason and said, I'm truly sorry, brother. I needed a way to get out of there and you are literally the only person in the entire United States military or government that I trust. You're still alive so that means you made it through the Admiral's evil test. I tried so hard to make it to the base before you arrived today but I underestimated that train and just how fast it is. I prayed that if I did not make it to the base in time to try and prepare you for what you were going to face that God would guard your heart and mind against the Admiral's mind control and give you the words to say to get through the situation intact. God apparently answered my prayers because Armoros doesn't just listen to what people say after he tests them. He invades their minds to see if they can be trusted and how easy they are to manipulate. I know that you want to know what's going on and why I got you involved with such an evil organization after not hearing from me for two years, so I need to start from the beginning so you know how and why I got involved with them. First off, you know that I was transferred out of SEAL Team 3 to another unit but you don't know why I transferred to Team 5 or what exactly our unit did over there. That transfer changed my life and everything that I thought I knew about the world that we live in. Jeremiah told Jason about encountering the giant blood-drinking monsters in Afghanistan that had killed his fellow soldiers and how he had discovered that Red Cell was recruiting these giants called Nephilim, along with other animal-slash-human hybrid monsters that sound like they came straight out of a horror movie as soldiers. He told Jason all he had learned from the intelligence he gathered during his years in the CIA. He told him about joining Red Cell to find out what he could about their end game and he told him what he learned about the Admiral, his son Bane, and the others like Armoros who were truly in charge of the governments of the world, especially Lucifer. In telling Jason the whole story, he told him about his return to Christ and how it was only through the protection and power of the Holy Spirit that he had been able to keep the Admiral from invading and controlling his mind. Jason sat quietly and listened to Jeremiah's entire story. It wasn't until they were pulling into the driveway at Jeremiah's house that Jason said anything at all. Jason looked at his oldest and best friend and said, I forgive you and you know I've got your back brother. I hope you get out and away from this group of demonic psychos. I've always had your back and that definitely isn't going to change now. If I hadn't seen this for myself then there's no way I would have believed it. 
I've never believed much in God and I've definitely never believed in monsters but I do believe you and I've seen enough for myself to know you're telling the truth. The thing I can't shake is the way that the words I needed to say to the Admiral just came into my mind and even though he was in my mind talking to me a few minutes earlier, he wasn't able to read my mind after Bane sacrificed that guy in front of me. You said you prayed for me and asked God to guard my heart and mind and give me the words to say and that is exactly what happened. On top of that, you say that Lucifer is the one in charge of everything including the US government and the governments of every major military power in the world. So if the devil exists then God has to exist as well. I guess what I'm saying is that even though I've never believed in God before, I would be a fool not to believe now. So I need you to tell me exactly what I need to do in order to be a Christian like you. It's very obvious to me that a war is going on between good and evil, and it's time to pick a side. You have picked your side and even went undercover with the enemy. This is me picking a side as well. Jeremiah smiled at his oldest friend and he proceeded to tell him all about Jesus Christ and why he had to come and die on the cross. He explained the gospel and showed him from the Bible. Jason was quiet for a few minutes and then he told Jeremiah that he believed that Jesus really was the Son of God and that he died on the cross and rose again three days later. He asked Jeremiah if he could be baptized and Jeremiah hugged his best friend and told him absolutely. The two men went inside where Jeremiah's daughter Jocelyn was watching TV in the living room. She was extremely happy to see her godfather and even happier that he had become a part of the kingdom of God. After they ate they went in the backyard where the swimming pool was and Jeremiah baptized Jason and they truly became brothers. As he went into the water, Jason Thorne's son of disobedience died. As he came up out of the water, Jason Thorne's son of the Most High God was born again. Chapter 11 Power Given From On High Acts 2 2-4 2 And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Three and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. Four and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Revelation 11 3, 6 3 And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. 6 These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. Jason Thorne and Jeremiah Sanderson sat on the back patio Jeremiah's home cleaning their M4 rifles, and discussing the earthquakes, volcanoes, and the asteroid that Jeremiah explained with the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 8. They were also going over the final details for their plan to escape from Red Cell while they were on the coming mission. The men were preparing to leave in the next two days and it would take flawless planning and help from God to pull off this escape. Both men had miraculously been assigned to the same unit for the operation but only the commander of each company knew where they would be heading. As it turned out Commander Bain was in charge of their company's mission. Both men expected him to be commanding the operation from the command center. This was an odd assignment for the commander. He was second in command of the most classified covert branch of the US military. It was classified above top secret. 
Red Cell was extremely overqualified for the most dangerous wartime operations, and that was before the upgrade. More than half of the soldiers were Nephilim who didn't need the upgrade and the rest were still head and shoulders above the rest of the Spec Ops community. Jason and Jeremiah were two of the only soldiers of Red Cell, or any branch of the military for that matter who hadn't taken the genetic upgrade. Chapter 11, Power Given From On High Acts 2, 2-4 2 And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. 3 And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. 4 And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Revelation 11 3, 6 3 And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. 6 These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. Jason Thorne and Jeremiah Sanderson sat on the back patio Jeremiah's home cleaning their M4 rifles, and discussing the earthquakes, volcanoes, and the asteroid that Jeremiah explained were the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 8. They were also going over the final details for their plan to escape from Red Cell while they were on the coming mission. The men were preparing to leave in the next two days and it would take flawless planning and help from God to pull off this escape. Both men had miraculously been assigned to the same unit for the operation but only the commander of each company knew where they would be heading. As it turned out Commander Bain was in charge of their company's mission. Both men expected him to be commanding the operation from the command center. This was an odd assignment for the commander. He was second in command of the most classified covert branch of the US military. It was classified above top secret. Red Cell was extremely overqualified for the most dangerous wartime operations, and that was before the upgrade. More than half of the soldiers were Nephilim who didn't need the upgrade and the rest were still head and shoulders above the rest of the Spec Ops community. Jason and Jeremiah were two of the only soldiers of Red Cell, or any branch of the military for that matter who hadn't taken the genetic upgrade. The upgrade had been voluntary for all military for the past year but had become mandatory the same day as the briefing for this new operation. Almost every enlisted man and woman had done everything possible to get the upgrade as soon as they could so by the time it became mandatory there were very few to enforce the mandate upon. Jason and Jeremiah had done everything they could not to take it even before Jason joined Red Cell. He said that he never felt comfortable with changing his DNA, and honestly he was in such good shape that he was able to keep up with the other SEALs as well as the other Spec Ops soldiers who had already taken the upgrade. Both men agreed that they had to have had supernatural help from God to have been able to be inside the base training for this operation every day over the last week without being forced to take the implant. It was supposed to be some kind of gene therapy implant that gave you enhanced vision, hearing, stamina, and strength, and was also a universal vaccine that made you immune to all sickness including the new super strain of COVID that was actually deadly. They both knew better than to allow a piece of tech to be put in their hands or forehead, which just happened to be where the implant was placed in people. They only saw a few green berets and a new member of Red Cell had just transferred from MI6 that hadn't taken the upgrade. They both decided that before they made their escape, they were going to try and talk to them to find out why they hadn't become superhuman. They thought that the MI6 guy might not have been able to get it before they shipped out. 
the Green Berets had been there longer than Jeremiah so they definitely had time which made them believe that God had to have intervened on behalf of the two of them as well. Jason and Jeremiah felt an extremely strong need to seek out other followers of Christ. The world had really gone to hell and Christians were few and far between. There were plenty of people who claimed to follow Jesus but Jason and Jeremiah knew that not everyone who made that claim followed the same Jesus as they did. This was evident by the amount of so-called Christians who truly believed that Joshua ben Yusuf was Jesus Christ returned to rule the world from Jerusalem. Jeremiah believed back in 2020 that they were coming out of the birth pains and into the tribulation when the lockdown started. Then the churches were closed. He now knew for sure since the volcanoes erupted and the asteroid hit, that they were not only in the tribulation, but in the middle of the trumpet judgments and almost halfway through. He decided that God must have allowed him to infiltrate Red Cell for a reason that was a part of his perfect will. He now knew that a follower of Jesus Christ had no place in any branch of the military. It went completely against the doctrine of Christ and he had been ready to get out. Christians had no place in the regular military and this was literally Satan's army. He knew the truth about them and he was past ready to get out of enemy territory. He was certain that there were fallen angels like the Admiral who were in the command center quite often. It would not surprise him if Lucifer himself was in charge there. He remembered how uncomfortable Admiral Armoros looked on that throne the day they had sacrificed someone in front of him to see how he'd react. It's not like anyone there would realize that if Lucifer was the one in charge. One thing that Jeremiah and Jason were always amazed by was how no one seemed to notice how out of the ordinary Commander Bain and his father Admiral Armoros were. He thought it had to be a spiritual thing. Both Jeremiah and Jason had a strong feeling the mission they were getting ready to leave for in the next two days had major prophetic significance. This was probably the only chance they would have to escape without being killed for sure. If they didn't use this opportunity there was no guarantee that either of them would get another one. Both men had decided that they were going to have to trust God completely. They didn't have a whole lot of choice in the situation they were in. The thing Jeremiah worried about the most was going out of the country and leaving his daughter in these insane times they were living in. Not to mention he had no idea how he would get back into the country if they went AWOL on mission and were able to escape with their lives. These were the things that they both had to trust God to work out according to his will. It was Wednesday afternoon and the men were scheduled to head out for the operation Friday morning. Jason had been asking Jeremiah questions about the end times and the two men had been studying the book of Revelation together to get the answers. Jason had been having the same dream every night about massive nuclear explosions occurring in several different cities but he hadn't been able to recognize which cities. He just chalked it up to nerves because of the mission and having to go AWOL but he thought he should probably tell Jeremiah about the dreams anyway. Jocelyn walked out the back door onto the patio and told her dad that a friend at school had invited her to come to a Wednesday night house church meeting with her family at 6 o'clock that evening. Jeremiah and Jason looked at each other and said at the same time, we all should go. Both men laughed and Jeremiah asked his daughter if she thought that would be all right. Of course daddy it's church. The early Christians all met at home. I knew that sweetheart. I just didn't want to invite Uncle Jason and myself somewhere that we hadn't been invited, Jeremiah said, partly blushing. The three of them arrived at the small service that evening and Jason was especially excited. This was the first time that he'd been to church in years and the first time that he'd ever felt like he belonged there. He actually liked the fact that it was a house church. It was an average-looking two-story home in a nice neighborhood with two cars in the driveway and six or seven cars including the one they were in parked on the front lawn. 
there were about 30 people seated in folding chairs around the large dining room that table had been removed from. They all stood together for prayer and sang two songs of praise and worship before being seated. A man who looked to be in his 30s then introduced himself as Minister Paul Jordan. He asked everyone to open their Bibles to Revelation 8. Jason was amazed at how God had shown John 2000 years ago, all the horrible disasters that had recently come upon the earth. The preacher continued with chapter 9 and Jason and Jeremiah looked at each other like they were both thinking the same thing. Before either man could tell the other what he was thinking, the front door of the house violently blew open and a sound from the sky boomed like thunder. Then it was followed by the sound of wind roaring as loud as a tornado that filled the house around them. They all should have been terrified but none of them were afraid. Each of them looked at the other in amazement as they saw cloven tongues of fire sitting upon their heads, but burning no one. Then they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to praise and worship God like none of them had ever done before. This went on for several hours before many of their phones rang. From the phone calls they learned that the same thing that happened there, had also happened to true followers of Christ gathering all over the world. It was then that Jeremiah talked to Jason and they decided that they needed to tell Minister Jordan where they worked and about the mission they were leaving for Friday. To both of their amazement, he believed them immediately. Jeremiah asked him if Jocelyn could stay with his family until he found a way to return and Paul agreed. After Jeremiah, Jason, and Jocelyn left the service, all the three of them could talk about was the miracle that had happened to them. They now knew for sure that God was with them and they were no longer afraid of the mission ahead. Chapter 12, Therian Rising, Revelation 17 8. 8 The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. Revelation 13 3 12. 3 And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. 4 And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? 5 And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. 6 And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. 7 And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, and tongues, and nations. 8 And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 9 If any man have an ear, let him hear. 10 He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. 11 And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. 12 And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Friday morning before sunrise, 11 transports left the Harvey Point facility in North Carolina for Operation Dark Dominion. Each were in the air carrying a mixed company of 100 red cell Nephilim and upgraded human super soldiers, with a few Holy Spirit-powered exceptions. The companies were each headed to a different destination.
The primary objective of each company except Baines was facilitating the transition in the cities that held the seat of governmental power in countries Lucifer and chosen as the capitals of Joshua Ben Yusuf's World Coalition. Commander Bain was on the way to Israel with his company, including Jason Thorne and Jeremiah Sanderson. The soldiers in Bain's company were only told that they were going to back up the Israeli special forces and protecting Prime Minister Yusuf once he became Emperor Yusuf. This did not make sense to Jeremiah or Jason but apparently one of the side effects of the upgrade was absolute and unquestioning obedience. Although none of the soldiers would have ever disobeyed orders, they definitely didn't used to be above talking to each other about orders that didn't make sense. The Israelis were the only country with spec ops soldiers that rivaled Red Cell and better with the upgrade they may even be able to match them. The upgraded Israeli regular military was also more than capable of backing them up as well as, if not then a single company of soldiers from Red Cell. Jeremiah and Jason both had a very foreboding feeling that they were there for something altogether different than protecting the Antichrist, but then they were among the minority of people who knew that Ben Yusuf was the Antichrist. It should have been obvious to anyone who had ever grown up in church or were familiar with the book of Revelation. Commander Bain and his company arrived at the Temple Mount about an hour before Prime Minister Joshua Ben Yusuf was supposed to give his speech announcing the formation of the new world government. Jeremiah, Jason, and the rest of their company were supposed to rendezvous with the Israeli security agency also known as Shin Bet. They were being debriefed on their specific assignments for the operation. Commander Bain had a meeting with Ronan Barr, the executive agent and director of Shin Bet. After meeting with the members of the Israeli security agency, Jason and Jeremiah were both overcome with a sudden extreme urge to go to the bathroom, which was very odd. When both men arrived in the men's room, they found it empty and immediately lost the feeling of needing to relieve themselves. Jason looked at Jeremiah and said that was very weird. I had to use the bathroom extremely bad until the moment I walked in the bathroom. Jeremiah told Jason that the same thing had happened to him but before either of them could say another word a man appeared in front of them out of nowhere. Both men started to back up and raise their M4s, but then they saw the man standing in front of them in all of his glory. Jason and Jeremiah both hit their knees and bowed their faces to the ground. Immediately the figure before them said please stand up. I am not like my fallen brethren you have both seen in command of your military. They demanded worship as God since they left their first estate in heaven. I am a servant of the Most High the same as both of you. I am the Archangel Uriel and you are both in grave danger and must leave. The man known as Joshua Ben Yusuf is the beast that rose out of the people of the world like Leviathan rising out of the sea. His time is finished. The day before our Lord sent power to you from on high, the abyss was opened and Apollyon, the spirit of Therion, and the army of the fallen have been set free upon the earth. Today the world will marvel when they behold the beast that was, is not, and yet is. Jason was in complete awe of Uriel, and had to make himself speak. I don't understand. If Ben Yusuf is the Antichrist, how is his time finished if the world is going to marvel when they see the beast today? Jeremiah was just as awestruck by the archangel as Jason but he remembered a verse from Revelation 13. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. I think I understand Jason, Jeremiah said. Well I'm glad you do. You sound as cryptic as he does. No offense sir, I mean your holiness, or maybe your heavenliness. Please forgive me Uriel, I'm new to all of this. Jason said embarrassed. Uriel just smiled. Fear not my young friend, 
you have not offended me but time is very short and you are not the only ones in danger. As a matter of fact all your brothers and sisters are in danger, or at least they soon will be. I must get the two of you to the place that was prepared for your safety. Wait if we're all in danger, I must get to my daughter, Jocelyn!" exclaimed Jeremiah. Rest easy and show some faith, brother Jeremiah. God did not only send aid to the two of you. You will see her soon, Uriel said calmly. At that very moment two things happened at almost the same time. The archangel grabbed each of the two men on the shoulder. The three of them disappeared just as a Nephilim soldier opened the door to the bathroom and started firing his M4 rifle. When the soldier stopped firing, he saw that no one was in the bathroom. He checked the stalls one by one and found them empty. The soldier then got on his radio and said, They aren't in here Commander Bane. Bane was shouting when he came back over the radio. Don't come back until you've dealt with them both, or you'll join them. Just as fast as they disappeared from the bathroom in Israel, Uriel, Jeremiah, and Jason appeared in the bathroom of what was obviously a house. Uriel let go of each man's shoulder just as someone was opening the bathroom door. As the young lady walked into the bathroom, Uriel looked up at her and smiled just before he disappeared. Daddy, Uncle Jason! Jocelyn exclaimed, running and throwing her arms around both men who were still in full tactical gear with their rifles hanging from their slings. Uriel had somehow transported them to Pastor Jordan's house in the United States. Sweetheart, I can explain! Jeremiah started to say. Before he could say any more she interrupted him. Dad, I'm just happy that God sent Uriel to you and he got both of you back here safely. Jeremiah looked at his daughter puzzled. She had seen Uriel but only for a second before he literally vanished into thin air. How do you know the angel? Jeremiah asked her sounding puzzled. She smiled and said Daddy you should come and talk to Pastor Jordan and let him explain everything to you. Jeremiah, I got to tell you bro, I'm really starting to miss California. Jason said jokingly, as the three of them walked out of the bathroom. Paul Jordan was sitting at the kitchen table with three other men and a lady. The eight of them were all there on the night the Holy Spirit had come upon each of them with power from God. They were all watching the news on a small television in the kitchen when the two soldiers walked in with Jocelyn. Pastor Jordan stood and hugged Jason and Jeremiah like he'd known the two men his entire life. We're glad to see that you're safe, said Paul sincerely. He then told all three of them to have a seat as he sat back down at the table. We've been watching prophecy unfold right in front of us on the TV. I finally understand what the Bible means about God sending a strong delusion. It's so obvious that the world is being restructured into the final world empire of the beast. You also have to be delusional in order to believe that Joshua ben Yusuf is the savior of every religion, including the second coming of Jesus. We've been watching it take place on television but you two were actually witnessing it firsthand, right? Pastor Jordan asked Jeremiah and Jason. Jeremiah spoke up and said, we were with the unit that went to the new temple in Israel. I'm not sure what they have planned because we didn't even know where the mission would be until the last minute. They obviously figured out that Jason and I were Christians because we were two of the only four soldiers who hadn't gotten the upgrade. That must have caused the Admiral to read our minds to see if we'd remained loyal to him. But he probably wasn't able to get past the Holy Spirit. The Admiral has had red cell killing Christians since 2021. He wouldn't have taken any chances on having the enemy inside his camp. So Commander Bain sent a soldier to kill us. If Uriel had not gotten to us when he did, we'd be dead. 
the soldier started firing at us the same moment Uriel transported us here, in whatever miraculous way that he does it. Everyone started watching the television when they heard the voice of Joshua ben Yusuf addressing the world from outside the temple in Jerusalem. He was explaining that the world would no longer be broken up into separate, independent nations, but instead would be broken up into a global empire made up of ten regions. Each region would have a king that would rule over it in his name and answer to him as the supreme emperor of the world. The ten kings would be chosen by him and any power they had would come from him. He had just gotten the words I will rule from the new capital of the world in Jerusalem, when a gunshot rang out causing everyone in the crowd to scream and hit the ground. The shot struck Ben Yusuf in the head, knocking him to the ground. Israeli security forces and Red Cell soldiers surrounded the fallen world leader and the people who had been on the ground in fear for their lives, were now on their knees, weeping loudly. The Red Cell soldiers had no idea about Commander Bain's secondary mission because they were all busy doing their jobs. You see, a good soldier never leaves their post and always follows orders. The 100-man company had been broken up into teams. There was 10 8-man security teams and 9 2-patrol teams. The security teams were assigned to guard a certain part of the temple complex, while the patrol teams were assigned a section of the massive grounds to patrol. This made it unquestioningly easy for Commander Bain to pair up with his spotter who was also the only other Nephilim on this mission. The other teams followed their orders exactly like the soldier that Bain ordered to kill Jeremiah and Jason. This allowed the commander and his spotter to easily take the shot to kill Joshua ben Yusuf and complete the first part of Bain's side mission. The second part of Bain's side mission was also carried out without a hitch. It happened live on international television with the whole world watching in disbelief. Bain rushed to the fallen Joshua ben Yusuf and arrived just as paramedics were loading him onto a stretcher. Tensions and suspicions were more than high between Israeli forces and Red Cell soldiers since only the two Nephilim knew who had fired the shot. Bain stopped the paramedics from loading Ben Yusuf onto the ambulance and that was the last straw for the Israelis, who all pointed their weapons at the commander. This prompted the Red Cell soldiers to raise their own guns and it seemed like the two sides were going to start firing on one another. Right then lightning struck the earth in the middle of them, knocking some soldiers back and others down. The lightning was accompanied by a blinding flash of light, and standing in their midst was Lucifer looking like an angel of light. He had appeared to everyone watching the same as he had appeared to the religious leaders of the world, to convince them that the savior of all religions was coming with Joshua ben Yusuf's description. I am Gabriel, messenger of God, he declared. Lucifer then put his hand on Bain's shoulder and declared to the world, the all-powerful God of the world has made this man his prophet and given him power and authority. He has also sent you a savior with the same power and authority, he then said, raising the lifeless hand of Joshua ben Yusuf before vanishing in a flash of light. Bain then walked over to the mortally wounded ben Yusuf with a new improved nanotech upgrade concealed in his giant hand. This upgrade had been forged with Kabbalistic sorcery and contained the spirit of Nero. Bain knelt down and pretended to pray with one hand on Joshua ben Yusuf's chest and with the other he attached the nanotechnology to his head. Arise my lord! Bain shouted, and then he stood, raised his hand high, then appeared to cause Joshua ben Yusuf to be struck by lightning as he threw his hand down towards him. He sat straight up when the lightning bolt hit his body, instead of destroying him the way it should have. As he stood to his feet from the stretcher, Joshua ben Yusuf became the risen beast. As he raised both of his giant hands in the air Bain shouted, Bow down and worship your risen lord whose deadly wound was healed. 
Jason Jeremiah, and the other Christians at the table watched in disgust as the enemy of God was declared the emperor of the world. They all knew that the next thing that happens on the prophetic timeline, the Antichrist would make all-out war against the saints of God. Bain, who they now knew was the false prophet, had already been killing Christians for years, but that was nothing compared to what was coming. About the author. Pastor Jeremy Anderson is from a small town in South Carolina in the southeastern United States. He has been married for 21 years to his high school sweetheart and they have four children. He has been the senior pastor of two non-denominational Christian churches and is currently an Anabaptist evangelist. He is the author of the Origins of Evil book series as well as the Dominion of Darkness Christian fiction series. Pastor Anderson is the founder of Kingdom Productions and is the host of the Christian video program, The Remnant Report as well as the audio podcast, Return of the Historic Faith.